Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and MBs, and welcome to a very special second Christmas special, as it were, for Wari Desho, covering all the Ghiblis, all the great and wonderful works of Ghibli, or at least three of them, this being the second entry in our little series here that we're doing for fall 2019. I'm Shaden, and joining me as always, he's from across the pond, he's close to my heart, he's a top dollar guy, please give it up for the Soul Doctor. Hello, greetings everyone. So happy to be coming to you with another Christmas Ghibli. Extremely, extremely excited. I have to say, Shadon, like, doing these, I kind of feel like I'm getting a little spoiled. I know, I know. It's so true. Like, I kind of want to just not do TV series anymore and only talk about anime films. (laughs) Because they're (laughs) just tremendous, man. God. But come on, Doc, we've got to serve that part of the audience that wants to hear me lose my mind every week. <laughs> it's it's a very important. They they The world needs that. We, we need to service the demographic where people, you know, can get vicarious shite out of my, you know, brain disintegrating and turning into like this jello substance that leaks out of both nostrils. But no, uh, ladies and gentlemen, MBs at home, this is not what we're going to be doing today. My brain will not be leaking out of my orifices. Thank you very much for that. Uh, instead, we're going to be covering another Ghibli film and... I'm going to tell you right now what that Ghibli film is. We are going to be talking about, if the title of the podcast has not spoiled it, of course, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. So, first things first before we go into actually talking about the film, because by God, there is a lot to talk about here. I need to do a bit of housekeeping first, as I did with our previous episode, which you may or may not have listened to, which was covering Laputa, Castle in the Sky. So... I'm going to be upfront and honest with you all here, folks, again, as I was last time, that I do feel a certain trepidation to talking about Ghibli films in general, because I've covered shows uh, both on my own and with Doc and with others that range from, in anime's own little, like, corner of, you know, pop culture, from the obscure to the well-known. But I don't think it's unfair to say that as far as how pop culture and general public knowledge outside of anime fandom goes, that there is a name, you know more recognizable than Ghibli as far as anime is concerned. That to me seems like what a lot of regular people would recognize as being anime first and foremost, like before things like say Cowboy Bebop or other, you know, gateway shows that you could in theory recommend to anyone. Certainly like as a production house, they have the, the big, like they're sort of, you know, Disney Japan, I think for most people, like there may be a few mascot characters that people think of immediately when they think of anime like i don't know a gundam or something like that but as far as like a place that makes anime this is absolutely top of the list yeah and that's just public knowledge but beyond that within anime circles i also think it's fair to say that there is no company or no studio with the possible exception of gainax i would argue who have been more like you know thoroughly reviewed uh, mm. critiques discussed debated and that's uh, then even goes beyond anime fandom to regular pop culture fandom and film criticism. Ghibli, you know, has attracted a lot of attention over the course of its, uh, you know, years from 
regular film critics like uh, Ebert, for example, um, or someone I'll be getting to in a moment. So I'm saying that I have trepidation because I don't want to pretend like, you know, that I'm someone necessarily who has brand new earth-shattering insights into any of their films. Because I can guarantee you there's some degree of confidence that a lot of what I'm going to say as far as analysis of themes and ideas go in this, much as in Lapiter, you may well have heard it before, and you probably, if so, have heard it articulated better. But what I will definitely try to do is to bring the one thing that I can bring that no one else can, which is my perspective and how I responded to the film emotionally. Uh, because Lapiter, to give you an idea, if you've not uh, listened to our podcasts on that by this time, that was just a joyous romp from start to end. Yeah. And Kaguya, Taylor Princess Kaguya, something else I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, so I'll put that in the tip jar. I think you're good. I think you're solid. Oh, thank God for that. I need put money <laughs> for later. You know, those pints <laughs> won't pay for themselves. But Kaguya, it's left me with such a bittersweet feeling. Hmm. And I'm part of that, you know, it was just the time that I watched it, because I've just been having some stuff on my mind lately. By the way, nothing to worry about, folks. It's all good. But it is a film that is very cautionary and very much speaks towards, you know, hubris and the best of intentions going wrong in a way that, you know, we realize it a little too late. Spoilers, by the way. So I will certainly do my best to give you my honest opinion of the film as how it affected me and how I re- it resonated with me. And I will, of course, still talk about the critiques and the analysis of it and, you know, themes and ideas and motifs and all that. But I'm also just putting out there that we are no one special. Uh, we, you know, we're just regular schmucks doing this stuff. We don't mean to speak authoritatively beyond what you may find elsewhere that probably does a better job of it. And on top of that, I need to emphasize that doubly with Kaguya for one reason. Because when we talked about Lapita, Lapita came out at a time when a certain thing called... What's that thing called again? Oh yeah, the internet didn't really mm-hmm. exist in the form that we know it today. Uh, certainly not in a social sense. Like, it was probably... I mean, it was the 80s, so if I had to guess, the internet as it was understood back then was probably government or military use only. And certainly not something like with BBS boards, which existed in the early 90s. So we now, of course, live... I mean, Kaguya, when did that come out, Doc? It was 2010? It was 2013 it was released in Japan. It didn't make it over here until the next year. Mm-hmm. But that's relatively recently in our history, and it's certainly at the point when social media was quite ubiquitous. And obviously, you know, with that being a thing, also comes greater attention from critics who otherwise may have missed it because they didn't have access to the internet and, you know, all the buzz surrounding the film. I bring this up specifically because in preparation for this review, I watched uh, Mark Moe's review of um, this film, which he did in, you know, shortly after it came out. Um, Mark Mode, if you don't know who he is, he's probably one of my favourite film critics, a uh, British gentleman, hosts a show on BBC Radio 4, and he doesn't necessarily fall in line with a lot of other critical opinions about various films, but he always does a very good job, in my opinion, of articulating not just how a film works in terms of its themes and ideas, but also how he responded emotionally to it, which is something that I'm trying to learn as well. Like, if I can become even, like, a tenth as good as a critic as he is, I'll be quite happy with that. <laughs> Um, but that I bring up because to tell you that, you know, we're entering a field here of covering Ghibli films and we're covering the film or one of the films that most recently came out that has had more attention probably than any other just by merit of arriving at this particular point in time. So we're going to do our best. We're going to have yes. a good laugh and a joke all the way as we go through it. I've got plenty of wisecracks to make about the parents in this film, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, and plenty, plenty of things to talk about as well. But yeah, 
we're going to do our bit, but don't take us to be authorities or that we're coming on across like, you know, as knowing best than anyone else about this. I would very highly recommend that you read up a lot of other material on this work and Lapiser as well, because there's plenty of rewarding things to be garnered from this film and from other people's critique and analysis of it. Totally, totally. Well, I just, just to um, do a similar thing to what you did, I echo all those sentiments about us not being experts and just want to say like that I hadn't seen this movie, unlike Castle in the Sky. I hadn't seen it before we did this show. So I've only seen it twice. I saw it... Um, once in English and then once in Japanese for this recording. I also watched the accompanying documentary. I think it's called Isao Takahata's Tale of Princess Kaguya. It's about 80 minutes, and I feel so strongly about that documentary that I think it is worth buying the Kaguya Blu-ray to get that documentary. Mm, yeah. It is so good. But the, And then the movie, of course, is um is just tremendous. I mean... Watching it, I'll just go ahead and quickly just say this about my overall impression about it before we get into the production stuff. Shadan, I I watched it the first time and I was really left kind of feeling, as you said, bittersweet, but leaning heavy into the bitter. Mm, Yeah, I definitely was. Really quite sad about it uh, and the way it ended. And I was just kind of pacing around thinking like, what? what was that? Like, what did we just, what, what was this journey? we just kind of went on. Hmm. And then I watched the documentary, got to hear about the thoughts and feelings of the people making it, going into it. And then thought about the film some more before that, actually. And after that, and watched it again. And now after seeing it, I feel I don't know, there's something about it that despite its sadness and despite some of the things about it that seem quite unfair, there's something quite life-affirming about it. And and yeah. I think it's, it just, yes, it fills me with, it fills me with a, um, I don't know, like it, it, um, just a sense that uh, I'm happy to be alive. And I want I, to. I agree, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm at the risk of getting way ahead of like the plot and such here. I will mention that the reason to me that Kaguya is bittersweet is because it does not have a happy ending per se, but it has an ending in which a lesson is learned. It's not the case, you know, that we move the characters move on in ignorance of what has happened and the mistakes they've made. The mistakes they've made do come at a great and terrible price that they can't undo. Don't get me wrong, but they have learned from that as opposed to the really nihilistic and really despair-inducing alternative of we made the mistake and we've learned nothing from it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that it is affirming in that way, because it's a reminder to us all that while we may not, of course, been in the same situation where we find a tiny walnut-sized baby and a bamboo stick out in the forest somewhere, and then suddenly we get gold out from the bamboo as well, and it leaves, (laughs) oh my God. Yeah, I can't say I can relate specifically to that scenario, that's never happened to you? Really? No, it, it really That's crazy. I know, on. right? It's happened to everybody that I know. I mean, I can't even win the bloody lottery, and never mind that, I can't find a bamboo stalk in England, <laughs> where bamboo doesn't naturally grow, of course, you know, and get gold from it. What kind of a crappy world do we live in, eh? But yeah, that to me, like, is what I came away from in that I was very moved by the ending of this film, which, of course, we will elaborate on in detail later. 
but it served as a lesson, a lesson that I think any of us, you know, whatever, uh, whether we have family or not, uh, whether we are, you know, just a lowly bamboo worker or someone high up, you know, that we can all take to heart. So we'll come to that in a bit. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. just going to add something else, by the way, that you may very well know, folks listening at home, that I am actually a relatively recent convert to watching anime. Now, that might sound crazy, but I only really started watching it in 2013, like, in general, which is to my shame and uh, ultimate and disappointment in myself. Because oh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Well, I, I say that because I think there's a certain temporal element to watching things as they come out that is key. Um, mm. And that's something, again, that I will be covering in a different podcast in the near future. But here's the thing, right? I actually did uh, watch The Wind Rises when it came out in theatres. I deliberately sought it out. Um, watching it, I think, at what was at the time the Corner House in Manchester, uh, which has now closed down, sadly, and been replaced with a different theatre called Home, which does more indie productions. And I walked away from The Wind Rises and thought, that was fucking incredible. It was Hayao Miyazaki's last work, and it really felt like an appropriate swan song for him. And then Kaguya came up next and this by the way i have no knowledge of what was really happening behind the scenes at ghibli beyond simply that miyazaki was not taking part anymore and i wanted to go see it and for whatever reason i don't remember at the time this was quite a few years ago i didn't and now having seen the film because this is the doc said to me like uh just give you you know peek behind the curtain to see how the sausage is made so to speak like Doc said to me, hey, you know what? I've suggested Lapter. Why don't you suggest Ghibli film? And I remembered that I had wanted to see Kaguya. I had never seen it. And given how different it looks visually from Lapter, which I would argue you could take as a general, like, you know, representative example of Ghibli's artistic style, I thought, this seems like a good bet. Let's do this because it's different and it's more recent. So I was doing it for those academic reasons. And then I watched the film and I'm like, well, uh... It's just ripped my heart out and kicks it around like a football. (laughs) Where is it? I'll find it. Put it back in. Okay, I've got my heart back in. So, I'm just going to say, like, again, my my opinion of this film is nothing but positive. Like, I had one or two minor niggles about Lapita. Um, I still think Lapita is my personal favourite film of the ones we've covered thus far because of its scope and its adventurous nature and like all the all the joy it brings. Mm-hmm. But Kaguya, although it is a much more sober film, still holds its own wonderfully. It's one of the better Ghibli films I've ever seen. I would actually rate it probably higher than, say, uh, Totoro, for example, or Up on Poppy Hill. I think, yeah, it's the things... Uh, it is up there. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, but I guess the reasoning I would give would not be some kind of objective reasoning, like, because those films are incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all relative with this. Yeah, it's just like what this is doing is, um, it's a kind of, well, first of all, the, the way that it looks, I think, is phenomenal. And then what it's doing with its story is um, more indirect and more complex, and it, that's just something I prefer. Yeah, I would I would agree. All right then. So we're going to go through, you know, a fair bit of detail here on the film itself. Uh spoilers are going to be present throughout, so I would very strongly recommend that you watch it first just because you should anyway. Don't make the mistake I did of waiting however many years it took me to watch the damn thing. If you've already watched it, go watch it. 
And oh, one other final bit of housekeeping. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Minovsky, who is, you know, patron saint of manga curation on Twitter. <laughs> also, a genuinely swell and dapper guy. He, he's pretty Casey. chill. Casey is his name. Yep. Mm-hmm. Casey, you're a good lad. Mm-hmm. Casey recently mentioned uh, on his Twitter feed that Kaguya apparently is returning to certain theatres. And I yes. think I may have seen Mark Camode do the similar thing for the UK as well. So it seems like it's doing the rounds again. So, you know what? However, which way you can see this film, be it, you know, seeing in the theatre, if it's playing close to you, wherever you may be in the world, or getting your hands on the Blu ray, just, you know, there's that little, like, you know, two bars on your player app that you're probably using right now, iTunes, whatever. It's, yeah. like, in the middle next to the fast-forward and rewind. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, give you the fighting game instruction here and mashing the heck out of that until we stop talking. You go watch it, and then you come back and hit play again. We'll we'll be patient. We will wait, you know, we'll wait yes. here for you. I can pour myself a couple of beers and, you know, sober up in time. It'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be right here. No rush. Absolutely. So, with all that said, I'm going to now pass the baton over to Doc for a bit so we can talk a bit about the uh, lead-up to this film, the production elements of it and such. Please do uh, lay it on us, Doc. Okay, so uh, the story of the production of this movie is a long one. And it's funny you talk about The Wind Rises, Shadon, because originally in Japan, this was supposed to come out at the same time. They were meant to come out in the spring of 2013, uh, together and it was good you know kind of be like Miyazaki's last movie Takahata's final movie also his first movie in 14 years at that point the man had not directed a movie since my neighbor my neighbor's the Yamanas in 1999 which I'll talk about again in a moment because it's important to why it had been 14 years since he made a movie but they were supposed to come out at the same time and there were all kinds of delays of, of the studio's own making, Ghibli Studio 7, that pushed it back to the fall because Takahata, and this movie is directed by Isao Takahata, is very much the kind of artist who refuses to compromise when mm. it comes to quality and his vision. And when you hear that, I think you might think of a stubborn, kind of hard man you know, no, I say, I will not bend to your will. But everything that I have seen of him uh, in that documentary and in other behind-the-scenes uh, Ghibli features, he really doesn't come across that way. He he definitely comes across as much more of a joyful spirit, much more of, like, he is, he kind of becomes his art. He's so absorbed in his projects that he can't bear to give them anything but absolutely the best hmm. treatment. And that is why he's he's more inflexible when it comes to, again, like the quality of his productions. And this can have good and bad sides, and which I will talk about. But I could talk about Takahata a lot, Shadon, but I'll want to like talk about a couple of the other people that I have hmm. notes about that were important to this movie. Let's see. So we have uh, Yoshiaki Nishimura, very important. Uh, without him, this movie would not have been made. He's the producer. It's a different person from the producer we talked about uh, last time, Toshio Suzuki. Well, he was actually production committee on Laputa, 
Isao Takahata was the producer of that movie, but Suzuki is like the big producer at Studio Ghibli. Produces mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, Miyazaki's works and is very influential and important person there, but uh, Suzuki was not... How did he put it in the documentary? He said he respects Mr. Takahata and he wants to see his movies, but he does not want to be involved anymore with them, with making them, because that is that becomes your whole life. It becomes mm-hmm. a 24-7 job. Yeah. And, and again, that is not something that he was interested in doing, especially in 2013, as opposed to like the 80s when Studio Ghibli was smaller. Like when it's so much bigger, it just becomes so much more of a task, right? Uh, and so he wasn't pushing Takahata to make any more movies. But Nishimura is the one that wanted to kind of bring him out of this sort of self-imposed retirement, right? Like yeah, he, yeah. He wanted to, he like for 18 months straight in 2005, way back in 2005. So this movie took eight years from yeah. concept to end to And it to also, um, if I may intervene, it has at the time the largest budget for any Japanese film, I believe. It was like I, yeah. the budget was ridiculous. Does not surprise me at all. No, not given the production values of everything that went into this. Holy shit! Boy, the money is very much on display here. Like, do you reckon that you know uh, Takara actually managed to finance this through a bamboo shoot that spouted gold? <laughs> is that how he did it? Is That's that why probably all... what happened? He was just like, "This is biographical now." <laughs> yeah. Well, he he spends it well rather than on well what happens in the film, I suppose. But we'll get to that soon enough, I suspect. Yeah. Well, um, so in this documentary, it said that Nishimura visited Takahata's house day and night for eighteen months, sometimes twelve hours a day. Like, and I'm just like Nishimura, what, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> just for a year and a half, trying to get this man to make this movie with you. Um, and and you may be wondering, like, why did he not want to make a movie? Well, like, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, another person very important, actually, to all Takahata movies is Osamu Tanabe, uh, who Takahata said, like, without him, he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to make movies because Takahata doesn't draw. He can't draw at all. And so he relies. I can relate. Yes, I know. Sometimes he draws storyboards, like, but you you'll see the characters are, you know, very simplistic. But he does pack a lot of detail, Takahata, into the storyboards. Yeah, I mean, my my magnum opus once was creating a stick figure fight in PowerPoint back in high school. <laughs> I mean, I submitted it for the Palm Dior and all that. I didn't hear back from them. But I just think they just couldn't quite appreciate, you know, the splendor of what I made. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> So, but Tanabe does the character designs. Uh, he's the directing animator and the, the chief storyboarder. And so, if you ever think to yourself, like, man, I love the way Takahata's movies look, think of Osamu Tanabe, because he's always been there to help realize the vision of Takahata, who, again, like, who can't draw, but, like, paradoxically, that's almost like an asset because he thinks outside the box. Yeah, yeah. And and has these very, like, detailed and uh, clear is not the right word, but, like, very, like, 
he has a lot of information that he conveys to people about what he wants. And so Tanabe, again, very important. Uh, Kazuo Oga, the background artist who... You know, um, if yeah. I may interrupt just briefly. You, absolutely. Uh, when, you, when you said then about like conveying what you want, you know what that brought to mind of all things? Mm. Alan Moore. Because okay. Alan Moore, a famous comic book artist and also possible, you know, worshipper of Satan. <laughs> right. The only, the only thing that's doubtful about that is possible and Satan because he is not a... You know, it's not in question whether or not he worships something. He doesn't worship Satan, he worships the snake god Set, as I understand it. <laughs> wow. He's also a phenomenal writer. Probably the only comic book writer that I've read of the very few I've merely read that I respect. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Alan Moore and, you know, his black magic. But in writing uh, Watchmen, uh, Moore, like, and also The Killing Joke, Moore was famous for basically laying out meticulous detail on, like, scripts, like, of where objects were. Hmm. like how is this frame constructed like here's this thing and it has to be at this particular angle it has to be this particular thing in light this thing in dark excruciating amount of detail so that's what that came to mind then and, I, and the thing is more himself he is a writer he doesn't draw but it doesn't mean he can't play a significant role in composing a scene or, or a frame totally totally and the sense i got from from watching the doc was that um, rather than uh, like more about physical objects in space, Takahata was really concerned about conveying emotions, like everything, like from like every lo- like you know m- micro details, like the way the lines looked to the expressions on faces to like the music. He actually has a a, a pretty extensive knowledge of music, and Miyazaki would rely on him for different things uh, as far as that goes. Like, um, like there's a scene in the documentary where like Miyazaki is working on like, uh, animating a record player and he's like, you know, Paku-chan, that's Takahata's nickname. Like, come, come look at this and tell me if this looks right. Cause I don't know anything about record players. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, the background artist, uh, Oga. So he did the backgrounds for my neighbor Totoro and only yesterday, uh, among other movies. And so his vision or kind of his thinking about anime backgrounds and what Takahata wanted to do in this movie really dovetailed nicely because so at the time when he was recruited for this, he was thinking, you know, anime backgrounds have been getting more and more and more detailed over time. I look at only yesterday that I did in the early nineties and I don't know, maybe I overdid it on that one. Those are really, really detailed backgrounds. He wanted to like, do something more scaled back. And Takata was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to do something lighter with lots of white space. Oh man, the white space. Oh, the white God. space. Uh, and so they ended up doing these like watercolor backgrounds. And it was really difficult because apparently with watercolor, it's unlike coloring in other ways because you can't kind of color over mistakes. Yep. So if you fuck it up, you have to redo the whole picture. And, well, that yeah, that's one picture of, like, one frame. And I, I've said this on the podcast in the past, and I think I've said it in error, but I'm just going to again give you the basic napkin math on this. So if you've got 24 frames per second to make a moving picture, and your film is then, as Kaguya is, two hours long. So, 24 frames per second. What is 24 times 10? 240. <sighs> What is then, you know, that times six? 
That's 1,400 by my... No, sorry. 1,440 by my count. Okay. Uh, So that's for one minute. In fact, because I have the magic of a modern computer in front of me, and because I'm incredibly (laughs) lazy, let's use Windows calculators. Thanks, Microsoft. You didn't fuck this program up. Uh, So, 24 multiplied by 60. 1,440. I was correct. I'm not a dum-dum. You did it. Thank God. Because my, my job is actually primarily maths-based, so I'm very glad I got that right. <laughs> so that's so that's one minute. 1,440 still images. This, again, is a very broad generalization, so don't take this as gospel, but I'm just giving you an idea of the magnitude of the task in front of, of you know, an animator to doing this. And then let's do 120. Multiply it by that. That gives you your two-hour runtime. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Um, there's no gentle way to say this number. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that it's going to end up on my bankruptcy statement in the future. Uh, 172,800. That's just the ones that made it in. <laughs> yeah. Like other stuff, you know, maybe you can like save a frame that's been, um, you know, botched. Watercolor? Yikes. I mean, it all now makes more sense to me why this film took so long and cost as much as it did, because it's... If you've ever seen, like, people assemble, like, giant boats out of matchsticks, like, I'm talking, like, boats (laughs) the size of actual boats, like, Mm -hmm. not, you know, like, you know, something you stick on your shelf. I'm talking about the thing that if it was, you know, waterproof, you could take out to sea. Like, that's the kind of scale we're talking on here for assembling this. And the results certainly do speak for themselves, holy shit like this film is just it's so gorgeous gorgeous it is and i'm gonna expose my ignorance here of actual japanese art i haven't unfortunately had the time to research as much as i would like to but there are bits of it that to me seem to have been patterned after certain um japanese art styles from at least what i can see on wikipedia from the 17th century although the tale itself uh of the bamboo cuss which the film is based on originates from the 11th century i believe Mm because I think it's like the oldest story in Japan, uh, mm. or of, of Japan, like in prose, rather. Yeah. Um, we'll get into the story in a bit, because there are actually substantial changes between um, the original and the one we currently have. Okay. And that is, in a, as it is we've been discussing in Sherlock, as it turns out, a function of time. No, seriously, seriously. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a function of time more than anything, because obviously, you know, what you write back in, you know, the year, let's see, I have it on Wikipedia here. The oldest manuscript dates back to 1592. Uh, although the original one came from the 10th century, I think, as a uh, as a folklore tale. So the thing about folklore, though, is it evolves over time. This is what yes. happens with Norse myths. So if you argue that it was indeed, you know, 1592, when the first definitive, like, you know, element of it was written down, then that, to me, I would argue, is probably the point where you want to start, like, using his definitive version. But anyway, that's still a long time between then and now. And the way that you write back in those days, character, and particularly character focus and character emotions and stuff, I don't think they were necessarily a thing as such back then. Now, obviously, you had things like Shakespeare, you know, like inner conflicts and all that. But it's not as well understood as it is today, I would argue, or necessarily felt to be as important. After all, folklore and myth tend to be more about broad stroke ideas than looking at characters specifically. Even right. when 
you have stuff like, you know, focusing on particular characters, say, in Greek myth, uh, they are very broad epic tales rather than dealing with, you know, the inner feelings and thoughts and emotions of a person. And that's the key difference between the tale of the bamboo cutter and the one we have here, beyond certain changes to the story, um, which is that this is Kaguya's story, whereas in the original, it is the tale of Princess Kaguya, but it is not the tale of Princess Kaguya the person, I would argue. At least not as described here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that this movie is called the tale of Princess Kaguya and not the... Because, be- I mean... The story is just far more interesting, I think, and then her as a character, even in the original, she's like the most compelling character. Why is it the tale of the bamboo cutter? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So on another note, I suppose it's worthwhile bringing this up now. Um, What was the director's name again? Because I'm just concerned about mispronouncing it here. Oh, that's okay. Uh, Takahada. Isao Takahada. Takahada. Yeah. Takahada. We would be remiss at this point, I suppose, if we didn't mention that Takahada sadly passed away. Um, what year was it he passed yeah. away in again? Was it last 20, year. 2018? Last, mm-hmm. Yeah, April. Yeah. Last April. Now, prior to us doing this podcast, Doc actually shared with me something that I didn't think I would see. Not because it was impossible, um, but rather the manner in which it happened which was that he shared via YouTube clip um, a subtitled um, clip of Hayao Miyazaki's eulogy for Takahata. And Miyazaki, you know, is one of those people who has become a kind of meme in his own right because of all the various things that he said that have been misinterpreted over the years or taken out of context. You know, the infamous anime was a mistake thing and all that, which... Yeah, he's actually right. Let's be very fair. Though. It was a <laughs> catastrophic error. Honestly, like it's the containment breach to last all Kateri. You think Chernobyl was bad? I mean, you know, when the first anime broke out to the West, that was it. It's just destroyed the life. Astroboy, the ultimate fork in the road. <laughs> yeah, I am, of course, joking. Uh, but on a very serious note here, Miyazaki, like my perception of him, having not seen much from beyond like clips from various interviews, um, over the course of several years, I've caught them occasionally. I always got the impression, and this is just an impression, not necessarily the reality, uh, even as it was then, never mind now. He was always very stern, very, you know, not hard-headed, I suppose, but very strict, very he disciplined. Is extremely, yeah, regimented also in yes, his, like, that's work a great style and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would think that him giving a eulogy... Uh, of his colleague here that it would reflect that regimented nature but he breaks down halfway through he cries mm-hmm. and you know like i again say i operate on this perspective that i have of miyazaki that probably doesn't even like you know resemble even a third of who he is really let's be honest but that perception was what i had and i f- was very struck by how someone like that who is as you say very stern and strict that well, I'm obviously not expecting him to be a robot or anything like that, or no. just to say, you know what, he did some good work. Now let's go and get the canapes from you know the buffet <laughs> over there. Let's go do that. He's obviously not going to do that, but it was more towards the other scale, other end of the scale, where to see him weeping openly. That to me, like we can give all the accolades that we want about this film and all that Takahata did for it, 
But I think you can probably find no more shining, you know, an example like an accolade, you know, a stamp of approval, if it were, or a vindication than of just seeing him weep over the talent and the friend that he previously lost, which reminds me of how I felt when I was uh, covering Tokyo Godfathers and Satoshi Kon, another person taken from us too early. God, what? Just... I mean, to be fair to Sakada, he lived to an old age, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But there's always something about seeing... I mean, he was, like, you know, still quite old even when he was working on um, Princess Kaguya. So, you know, there'll be no more of that anymore from him, at least. But no. like with everything else, that means we still have a legacy left behind of wonderful things that were given to us, which we should cherish and treasure. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why we're doing this today. Yes. yes. Doesn't mean, of course, you know, we can't poke fun at it every now and again, but, you of know. Of course. <laughs> uh, but it is just worth, you know, pointing these things out because there's always going to be a certain part of the, you know, a certain way of doing things that we'll never quite see again when people like Takahara pass on. Oh, Okay. Gonna try to pick I know, myself up. Man, um, we we've not even talked about the film yet. I've already made things miserable. <laughs> boy, well, there's there's more. Okay. Oh boy, there is more. Yeah. So um, the music. Get your Kleenex ready. Yep, yep. So the music, uh, the score, done by uh, Joe His- Hisaishi. And if you're unfamiliar with Takahata's work, like I mostly was, I mean, this is only, I, I just embarrassing honestly like i had only seen only yesterday prior to watching this i really have to catch up because after this and that documentary i'm pretty enamored of of the man but uh hishaishi who like had done all these ghibli scores like from nausicaa laputa princess mononoke spirited away like he had never done a takahata movie he'd never scored a takahata film despite the fact that Takahata is the one who picked him out to score Nausicaa. Like, wow. Yeah, he, he was, you know, picked him out of a lineup, so to speak. And it's just like, this guy. Because uh, Miyazaki, like oh, I said, oh. Miyazaki doesn't know anything about music. <laughs> lineup. Was, was, right. he like, was it just like police lineup? Like, you know, all right, we arrested, we arrested yeah. a bunch of drunk musicians. You pick one of these guys, they get to go out on bail, and the rest of them go to prison. <laughs> if it, it would have been basically an eeny meeny miny mo, I think if Miyazaki had picked because, like I say, like music is is less his forte than the other aspects of film. But uh, yeah, so he always like felt like this gratitude and kind of like owing of a debt to Takahata, uh, and and really wanted to do something with him. And you know when they asked, he was like, oh yes, please, we we must do this and. Uh, when they were kind of figuring out who was going to do the music and Takahata was talking about his Aishi, you know, he said his music will get down into the creases of the film mm. and accentuate what's there. And I feel like that that's super accurate to how it turned out because it's not a score that, um, you know, there are a few motifs that you hear regularly but it's not a score that the first time you watch the movie is going to like jump out and grab you. You know, maybe the the ending piece, maybe the beginning piece, but, but it really, um, it does its job extremely well and like accentuating emotionally, like what is happening in the movie. Mm. Um, and I love it. So the, the, uh, the, all the voice actors in this movie are good. It's really hard to like single out people, you know, 
and be like, we could talk about Lucy Liu doing the teacher lady <laughs> in English. She's great. <laughs> we could talk about um, the lady who, uh, Aki Asakura, who was Kaguya in the Japanese track. She's phenomenal. But a person that I, I, I can't remember who did um, Abe, Minister of the Right, but he is hilarious. Um, he was the one who offered the uh, the uh, rat fire fur, the the man with the painted face, and wh- whose uh, whose fur got burned up on the coals, and he rescued it out of the fire, was stomping on it, and he was sad. I found that that voice acting performance was hilarious, but the person I wanted to shout out actually is uh, Takeo Chi, who was the voice actor for Kaguya's father. The, yes. The titular bamboo cutter. Uh, he he was so fucking great. And, like, there's a scene... So, I should note, like, all the voices were recorded before even one picture was drawn. Um, And, you know, l- later in the process, years later, they brought people in to do posts or maybe touch-ups or whatever. But, like, 95% of the work seemed to have been done before anything to do with the visual start. Yeah, I mentioned that actually with um, Tokyo Godfathers because in watching the behind-the-scenes documentary for that, uh, what they had done was actually in reverse, uh, as I understand it. This wow. is probably the point where I will re- where it will turn out that I completely misremembered the very oh, podcast no. <laughs> I made with myself. Um, I do that all the time. So you can do it, but the thing is you can do it either way. Um, in Tokyo Godfather, as I noted, for example, in West Animation, uh, that noted uh, voice actor and, you know, person most famous for his role in Wing Commander, Mark Hamill. Uh, he, <laughs> How dare uh, who, of you? Course, he, he, of course, voiced the Joker in the Batman Animated Series. Why am I bringing up the Batman Animated Series, you might ask? Because in the creation of a particular episode where the Joker is doing a eulogy for a mob criminal, uh, one of the better episodes of the show, by the way, they actually got Mark Hamill to record the performance of the Joker in a booth based on the script, but they hadn't storyboarded it yet. And Hamill's performance was so expressive, so like out there, that they based the storyboard on his actual physical mannerisms as he was getting into the role of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do it either way. Um, if I am wrong, by the way, on uh, to- the way Tokyo Godfathers was done, because I... My memory, you know, my brain's turning to mush all the time, honestly. And I think I, that may very well be the alcohol. No, nah, it can't be. Can, alcohol causing brain damage, that can't be right. That's that's impossible. I don't believe that. Yes. And so I talked about the amount of information that Takahata relays to people that are actually, you know, d- doing the work of drawing or doing voices and how, like, he, he just cares about every scene every line it, it, i guess it all has meaning and it's all meant to convey emotions that are very specific and i think that's one of the things that i admire is like the complexity of the emotion that he wants all the elements in the film to carry like he's telling chi there's a part of the documentary where he says the character's voice needs to have the sense of that his warmth will never fade. And that will come through naturally because it's you, Chi-san. And like, how great is that, by the way? Um, that vote of confidence. But also like the, the 
like very specific picture painted and like you know he's not just saying like uh you know sound nicer do it deeper put on a smile like it's it's just um there's so much more to it than that and there's a scene in the documentary when uh Takeuchi is is acting the part when uh the bamboo cutter is kind of marshalling the defenses when he finds mm. out that Princess Kaguya is going to be taken back to the moon, and he's like, "No, spoilers." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, I, we're going to get I into just, it. Can I just, can I just say how, like, I don't know whether or not it's just like you know deep fatherly love, or just being such a baller that you're like, oh, oh, we got these punks, these, these wankers coming down from the moon they're going to snatch my daughter and you know what they could rock up yeah. all they want and we're going to fight them I, I mean I don't know if you know but uh, in anime if you want to fight spirits from the moon you're probably going to get the shit kicked out of you <laughs> I mean it happened in Land of the Lustrous, Lustrous right? Yeah. and they certainly didn't have bought around this time you know to murder the Buddha as he came flying down from the sky on the cloud <laughs> So I didn't think that, you know, his peddly little pissant army was going to do much, to be quite honest. And lo and behold, they don't. <laughs> but kudos for trying, you know. I will I will gladly give them a gold star for effort. I mean, as a dad, I get it. Where you're like, yeah, I, I just, I will not have it. Like, I'm throwing my body on the line, you know what I mean? Are you, like, you going to flip the moon off tonight, Doc, when you see it? I, yes, I'm going to flip it off and flip it as if it were a table. Come, uh, come at me, come at me, moon, and then it just turns into the you know the moon from Majora's Mask, and you go, oh, oh sweet shit, yeah, no, um, I regret my decision immediately. It's horrible, <laughs> terrifying. Um, but but when he's recording that scene, like you see Takahata like tearing up, it's just and what a performance, and it's so sad. But uh, but she passed away in 2012, so he did not get to see the completed fruits of his labor and um boy that is extremely sad and and he's not someone who is in a whole bunch of anime in fact i think that's also the case for the lead voice actor uh asakura i don't think she's in a bunch of anime either i may be wrong on that but i refuse to check right now well i that's just deeply regretful uh that he did not get to see it okay now we're going to talk about takahata and we've been talking a lot about people involved with the movie and its creation. But we're, we're, I promise we're going to get to the movie, but Takahata is someone I find incredibly fascinating. Um, he was almost 80 when he finished this movie. It's his final movie, of course, as we said, his first in 14 years. What a... Talk about being a baller. Imagine Takahata, right? You're like, I haven't made a movie in 14 years. You know what? Let's do Japan's oldest story. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. That's, that's, that's like Guy Ritchie coming round and saying, hey, you know what? I've been out of the loop for, for a bit, lads. You know what I want to tackle? The Canterbury Tales. There's no way that could go wrong. <laughs> no. Or like, um, yeah. Oh my God, now I'm imagining Guy Ritchie's version of that. Oh, shit. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet time. Hey, to be fair, there was that Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet where they had guns. I quite which was like pretty that. Good, yeah. Actually, that was yeah. that was good. I dig it. Uh, but Guy Ritchie is not Baz Luhrmann. N- no, no, he's he's not. So you might be wondering, why did Takahata not make a movie in fifteen years? Well, 
So around the time he started to make uh, My Neighbors the Yamadas, he was extremely tired of doing cell animation, which is what the Ghibli studio is set up for. You have the backgrounds, then you have like the characters that go on top of them. It's cells. You animate the cells, the characters, not the backgrounds. And that is what they were set up to do. That's the process. And in doing the Yamadas, like he did this totally different thing that they don't go into a ton of detail. I don't think about like what he did, but it basically like quote through the studio into chaos unquote. <laughs> the production system was ruined is a quote. Like he just he took all the like the people that were there that had done this one thing for their entire careers and just like okay, time to learn a new skill. And it took time and some people didn't learn and they weren't doing anything and you know it was just this yeah, like whirlwind kind of chaotic project and the movie tanked it did not do well in Mm. box office i think people that watch it now looking back you know have respect for it and and enjoy it as a like a kind of family movie but to to upend ghibli for something that uh was a bomb like when miyazaki got there to the studio to start work on spirited away came out of retirement to do Spirited Away. Then he saw the studio in disarray, and he was just like, never again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can, can, you ima- can you imagine, like, let's just say, okay, let's say, let's say Metallica. And let's say you've got James Hetfield on guitar, okay. and you tell him, all right, James, look, I know you've had a good thing going by playing guitar for however many decades you've been doing this for. Like you've done some good albums. We we don't talk about Saint Anger much for obvious reasons. Yeah, oh God. Um, but how about? And I know this is going to sound crazy. How about you play the accordion instead? <laughs> right, right. Because that that's the impression I'm getting from what you're telling me there. Yeah. And I mean, as much as I would love to hear Ed Sandman on the accordion. Uh, I don't think it's it would be, you know, a big sell to people. Like, you know, when they go to a festival and they just see him there, you know, dancing on stage playing Excellent! You know, be, yeah, it would be bad. Yeah, it, it, it would be pretty <laughs> dire. Uh, this is the point where someone will send a YouTube link of James Hetfield actually playing, playing the accordion. The <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, so, uh, after that movie, he, he was kind of done. Uh in his mind, you know, he's like, well, uh, this place won't support the kind of different things that I want to do. So I guess I'm kind of out until, you know, Nishimura pulled him back in. And that was like a sticking point at the beginning that he said he wanted to break free of being stuck to do this one animation style doing cell animation. Right. And, in like the process for creating the movie, um, again, like his inability to draw is what kind of freed up his mind to to think about things in this certain way to come up with what he termed sketch style. So Takahata believes that um, the rough sketches that animators do that that when they're drawing with the faintly drawn lines have more passion in them than like 
the careful touch-ups. He feels like that going back and doing that dilutes the emotion in the pictures. And mm. so he wants to, he actually wanted to bring to life the faint rough sketches that are like more imbued with all the emotion from the artists. Cause he, he was saying like, when you draw really fast and you sit down and draw it, you're in, you're just full of passion. But when you're correcting and kind of like, it's just, you're detached and, and he hated that. And he wanted to create this new form of animation by bringing these lines to life on screen and, you know, it was disruptive. Again, like these animators had never done this. There are people that, you know, were brought in freelance and they're like, wow, I'm established professional, but I've never done this before. Um, and so everybody had to learn to copy Osamu Tanabe's lines for this movie. And and Takahata also suggested they play the accordion. Indeed. He they said, they play, obviously turned that down. Play the accordion. Um, and so... What he wanted was the characters and the backgrounds to blend together to appear as one picture rather mm. than like characters on top of backgrounds being animated. And, you know, he thought that that would capture the uh, energy of a current moment. Like he didn't think it would be the cleanest, the most complete, the prettiest, but he was grasping at reality he wanted to like grab hold of a moment and communicate it and he thought that those images the sketch style images would attain more reality in their incompleteness than something so polished would do hmm. and so an, uh, this you know the relearning and doing things like you said it was a process it took a lot of time it took a lot of work Another thing that took, made the movie take a long time to do was, so Takahata is very involved in every kind of piece of the production. But when you hear that, you might think, well, he's micromanaging. But actually, like, it's very collaborative. Like, he, for instance, didn't, uh, you know, apart from, like, the scenes that I told you about where he would say, hey, Chi, here's kind of, here's something to go for and i know you can do it he says he largely left like uh, most people like the voice actors and things like that kind of free to use their imaginations and he wanted like the everyone on the project actually collaborated on like every cut of the movie hmm. it's a very collaborative process but like consensus as you know from working in a workforce it's very time consuming to achieve like like they would just be sitting in a dark theater for hours watching the same take over and over and over talking about it, you know? Wow. Like the storyboards took three to four years to complete from start to finish. Um, at one point, the studio had to do a partial shutdown just so that like, like during the holidays, like Takahata and Tanabe just like cranked out the storyboards so, yeah, Takahata is, as I'm watching this movie, Shadon, this documentary, and Kaguya the movie, seeing his joy, seeing his passion, seeing how he en seemed to enjoy collaborating with other people and communicating his vision, like, how do I express this? 
Like, it was like I wanted to go make movies. Like, he made me feel that. I'm like, I want to work with this. Like, I want to a boss like this. I want to create something with this man. Cause like he really like to the nth degree, he gives a shit and he realizes he's making art and it becomes his whole life. But, but that can be a bad thing. Yeah. Right. And I, I was reading like this anecdote by Toshio Suzuki, who we've spoken about on both podcasts after Takahata died, he was talking about him. And this is admittedly pulled out of context. Like, Suzuki wasn't out there being like, aw, shit, now I'm going to take a shit on Takahata now that he's dead. Like, he's talking in a long-form interview about the man's life. But, you know, he did say that, like, you know, he, like, people were overworked. The sort of downside to being the free spirit kind of absent-minded, I'll stay up all night and work on everything. Ah, yeah, I see where you're going with this, yeah. Like, he was very, like, it's almost like he just didn't realize that everyone else... Yeah, didn't have a finger on the pulse of a team. Couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. You need need to have that kind of, like, you know, hotline to people when you're a a manager like that. Uh, Rather, I mean, you can have, like, managers, for example, who are maliciously or deliberately ignorant of their workers' needs. Cruel people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then you can have people like Takahara who are so passionate that it consumes them and kind of like puts the horse blinders on. Exactly. I think his head was just so in the clouds that, you know, he didn't see that other people were like suffering at times. And not everyone, but some people were. I mean, there's a very famous case that Toshio Suzuki was talking about where one of their uh, animators or, or I can't remember the exact position. I think it was an animator had had died. I think he was called Kondo. And at that funeral gathering, you know, someone was like, you know, you killed him, didn't you, Takahata? And all Takahata could do was like gravely nod because I think it's like one of those times he's like seeing, oh my God, like. I wake up call. I do like that people can't, can't handle this and i think he probably was just so deeply regretful but he's just he was wired in this way that you know isn't compatible a a lot of times with like other people's needs and like you said it's not in a cruel or malicious way i don't think and i like and, and i don't know the man maybe off camera he's a real bastard who cracks the whip on people but it just didn't seem like that he seemed so young at heart and so like filled with uh just like ardor to communicate his emotional like vision and his feelings through art and everything but you know um if i may if i may incede you've just given me the perfect segue to talk about something else that i think is really admirable about this film there is an article on IndieWire uh, written by Bill Sowitz, another name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, even though it's not in Japanese because mispronunciation is one of my superpowers. Um, this was written in December of 2014 and it is actually an interview he conducted by email with uh, Takahata hmm. on uh, the creation of Princess Kaguya. And there's a paragraph here. Um, I will read it in full for you all. Um, that I find very, very interesting, given my own fascination with how adaptation works and how I feel someone should have the latitude to do what is necessary to make a story good. So, uh, firstly, this is Bill Sowitz's opening uh, comment here. 
Tell us about the importance of the tale of the bamboo cutter for Japanese culture and for you personally. Did you read it as a child? What resonates for you as an adult? It's certainly timeless with a rich yet tragic rite of passage story for girls who have difficulty meeting the expectations of their parents and being true to their own desires and abilities. And Takahata's response goes as follows. As all Japanese have, when I was a child, I read the folktale The Princess Kaguya in the condensed version written for children. I thought it was a strange story. In my youth, I read the original tale of the bamboo cutter, which was probably written in the first half of the 10th century. I still thought it was a strange story. It had some humorous parts and was full of curious aspects of the story. But the heroine's transformation was enigmatic, and it didn't evoke any empathy from me. Your question makes me wonder if you are asking about the tale of the bamboo cutter. I thought that you were writing about the film that I had made, and not about the original story. But if watching my film has led to a deeper understanding of the original story, that would be a great honour for me. Mm. And here's the thing. As I said before, all of the character-related stuff that's specifically about Kaguya as a person, Mm -hmm. rather than a mythological being, in that kind of inscrutable way that mythological beings can often be in folklore, that, as I understand it, is Takahata's Takahata's, um, addition or change to the original story when he brings it through to the film from its original format. And I have to say, firstly, how incredibly brave of him to do that on such a, you know, renowned folktale in Japan. Yes. But secondly, it, in my opinion, was absolutely the right move to make. Mm-hmm. It was the perfect way, in my opinion, to bring the story to, you know, a modern audience without in turn resetting it in a modern environment by allowing us to relate to it in modern ways. You know, with that empathy that he said he found that he couldn't, you know, have as a kid because he couldn't understand the heroine's transformation because there was no, you know, humanity to her mm-hmm. in the original tale, which is not a fault of the tale, so it's just, just it's a product of the time in which it was written. So, as someone who has said many times in the past on this podcast that I think that, you know, adaptation should be you do what is necessary to make the story good as long as you remain to the spirit of it, I think this is probably one of the best examples I've seen where that was done to such a degree while still being truthful and faithful to the original material. Because giving Kaguya that, you know, making her a three-dimensional character with her own agency and her own reactions and emotions, rather than simply being the mythological deity she originally was. That made it all the more powerful for me. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I echo that. The The final anecdote that I have about the uh, production process, before you talk about the original tale of the bamboo cutter, was, uh, this is another person to shout out, um, Kazumi Nikaido. She did the ending song, When I Remember This Life, which is like, I mean, it would just break your heart. And I mean, what an appropriate title, right? When she she did it after she watched the movie and, um, you know, Kaguya leaving, leaving Earth. But when she wrote it, she was pregnant due to give birth in one month. And wow. she recorded the song and she wrote the song, When I Remember This Life. And it was about the movie, but also it's like she's singing to her unborn child that, you know, we will meet again in some nostalgic place. And that's something Mm. I find incredibly moving. Um, I can imagine, yeah. 
for sure. So yeah, like what a what a story behind the scenes of everything in this movie and you know, of complex feelings about about Takahata. He's not perfect, but I think he's an extraordinary filmmaker. Uh I again am kind of in awe of him in a lot of ways and and also just everyone, you know, uh Oga with the backgrounds, Osamu Tanabe, Nishimura, who I didn't mention this when I talked about him as producer, but just a couple years after this came out and Ghibli kind of folded up, he founded Studio Ponok, which I think I don't I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's I think the Japanese were made for midnight in 2015. And I talked about this movie just the other day on our um Vinland Saga stream. You know, they did Mary and the Witch's Flower. So he's behind that as well. So there's a connection. Well, I, need, I, need to, I need to add another pin to my corkboard of like, you know, the twisted, like, you know, continuity of all our podcasts where we lead yes. something else. It just keeps happening all, all the way back to Bando. It just all oh links God. together. Oh my God. Like there's a, there's a strange and twisted, like, Wari Desho podcasting universe going on here. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It really is. All right. So we've talked for quite a length here about um, the <clears throat> about the production process behind this film and all the various behind the scenes tumult and Takahara in, in particular as well as, as the central figure there. But I suppose it's now time for us to actually talk about well, what is the tale of Princess Kaguya about? Now I'm not going to elaborate in great depth here on the plot so as not to bore people, Steph, and also because I do genuinely think if you've not already heeded my advice before of, you know, turn this bloody podcast off and go watch the bloody film already. Watch a, bloody LC. Watch a movie. Because I, I do think, like, you know, it's something that needs to be experienced. Like, I, for all that I'm going to tell you about how I felt, you need to experience it a lot yourself. It's something that, you know, all the words in the world I could put in a podcast or an article or anything like that can't really match the feeling you get of watching it. No. But anyway, Princess Kaguya is based on the tale of the bamboo cutter, and indeed there is the titular bamboo cutter who we meet at the start of the film. And in cutting uh, down bamboo uh, in the forest nearby where he lives in the countryside, he living a very sparse existence, he finds a growing bamboo stalk that just miraculously sprouts up, and from it is a very, very tiny child. Like, we're talking like, you know, not even Hideo Kojima Death Stranding tiny, we're talking (laughs) tinier than that. So he believes, like, you know, it's a gift from the heavens, this child, um, a princess even, and takes her back to his wife. And the baby starts growing quite rapidly, in spurts particularly, um, such as when the mother uh, breastfeeds her, or as we later learn, uh, when she interacts with other people in a kind of like, like you know, like just living life I, vivaciously, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, the film dedicates a substantial chunk of its first quarter, I would argue, if not the first act, to just showing Kaguya, who is not named at this point, by the way. I'm only using the name for convenience sake here, but the name will be important later. What do her friends call her? Um, Little Bamboo. Translated as Little Bamboo. Uh, Takinoko, yeah. Mm-hmm. Takinoko, yeah. The first like, third of this film, or maybe the first quarter, is entirely devoted just to showing Kaguya living a life in the countryside, growing up to becoming a young, you know, going through this stage, a sign as a child, then to an older child, then to a teenager, and then to a young adult. Um, well, maybe not even a young adult, maybe a teenager is probably the stopping point uh, before the film t- shifts locations to the capital city. But nonetheless, a substantial amount of time is used for that. And 
if you're, you know, a critic like me, you might wonder, okay, why? And there's a very good reason for that, because the film is very laborious in showing us the life that Kaguya lives and all the joy and beauty of it. Just something as simple as playing with friends, like, you know, in a lake, uh, you know, catching a pheasant, you know, all the hopping, you know, to c- catch with the frogs, like, you know, when she's very young. <sighs> All the all the people that she meets and is friends with, like, there's no negative side to any of this. Like, the closest that Kaguya comes to any harm is when a boar rushes her. But that's it. It's just a wonderful vignette of, like, of a series of vignettes of just a very pure and wholesome life. But it doesn't last. But then. <laughs> but then, Mr. Bamboo said. Uh, in one of his forays into the, you know, doing his job. I mean, he's the bamboo cutter after all. He doesn't play the accordion. Uh, he finds when he cuts down a certain bamboo again, which is glowing, that it has gold inside of it. A lot of gold. More gold than probably anyone else in the land has. On top of also a set of robes. And so he and his wife, or rather he says to his wife and she goes along with it, let's take Kaguya to the capital and turn her into a fine young lady, a princess, to become truly royalty. We have the money, you know, we can turn her into a high-born citizen. And then, with very little, like, time to truly comprehend the change that will be made as a result of this, Kaguya is whisked away into the capital. Her parents have, like, you know, bought themselves into a noble house and a mansion has been built for them. Uh, They're already wearing the ceremonial garb and makeup of the, you know, Japanese nobility. And soon enough, Kaguya ends up meeting, um, I am going to cheat and go to Wikipedia, (laughs) Uh, Lady Sagami, uh, who is voiced by Lucy Liu in the English dub, as you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And Lady Sagami is going to teach Kaguya how to be a lady. Now, the central question, of course, of this entire film, though, is, is is that what's best for someone? Hmm. 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 And indeed, Lady Sagami herself serves as kind of a, almost a, how do we put this, a, a, a vision of the future. Ah. She herself is, of course, you know, dressed in that garb, like with the makeup and the blackened teeth. Why the black teeth, man? This is like, maybe this is super culturally insensitive, but like the black teeth, it's... Ugh. <laughs> Look, they just used a lot of charcoal-based toothpaste, okay? <laughs> that's what that's what the Japanese dentist said was best. They didn't know anything better. So, that then, of course, leads to Kaguya resisting. Uh, Kaguya does not want to go through this, wants to maintain like the normal lifestyle, just running around and playing that she has, rather than becoming a, like, a proper lady, quote-unquote, I should stress, uh, you know, that Sagami thinks that she should be. And various things happen. Eventually, Kaguya gives in and is, you know, painted, uh, eyebrows plucked. And that then leads inevitably to, you know, well, we've got her all dolled up. Let's marry her away. Let's go get some princes and some suitors in here. Because, you know, Disney, it always works out when princes come for the, you know, you know, the princes are never bad or anything never. like that. Unless you're watching Frozen, I suppose. Always bastions of virtue and high character absolutely and by howdy did we get a you know <laughs> i mean the the guy the princes that turn up to you know marry her uh, off their hand in marriage to princess kaguya like 
they look like the presets from the Fallout 4 character creator. Ah! Like, you've got the complete blend here. You've got the regular looking guy. You've got the one who looks like, you know, his face is as wide as his shoulders yes. because he's been having one too many takiyaki or whatever. <laughs> uh, you've got all of them in here. You've got the one with the porno tash. They're, they're all in on oh, this. Yeah. So, Kaguya, like, you know, after hearing all of their, you know, long ramblings about how she's the most beautiful, you know, creature to ever ever walk the earth which by the way they ain't seen shit about how she looks no no nope which in itself is a is a big That's part of the film very important yeah yeah who's yeah. your favorite prince among the uh, slash minister uh, i'm gonna i'm not going to answer i'm not going to answer that now because it's going to be a big talking point of mine later okay okay well i just want to uh, say abe minister of the right again shouting him out hilarious really <laughs> funny <laughs> Oh, was he the one with the uh, the fake cloak that looks like it was made out of vinyl? That would be him. Yep, yep. In the painted face. Incredible. Do you know how many first edition David Bowie albums he had to melt down to make that? <laughs> oh, fortunate. That's the, that's the real crime there. <laughs> in, the Honestly. Dub, in the dub, he's like, no, my whole fortune. <laughs> oh, man. He really thought that was going to be fireproof as well. What a moron. Ah, uh, <clears throat> Kaguya decides, I don't want to get involved in any of these people. Uh, they're all terrible, which is correct. To varying degrees, mind you, and that will be important later. But she sets some impossible tasks to seek out like mythological items that they all mention. Like they compare, for example, one of them compares to like the fire robe of the muskrat mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. He says, oh yeah, okay, yeah, this thing that you compare me to, go find it. Go find it and bring it back if you know so much about the it. jeweled branch on Mount Horai. There's, oh, you uh, mean the aluminum Chris? You mean the aluminum Christmas tree that fucking gets destroyed? <laughs> That's just that was my first thought. I was like, "What the fuck is this shit?" I could go pick this. I could go pick this up at B and M bargains yes, for a fiver and go get myself a bottle of cider on the way out. It's a big lights Christmas tree. <laughs> Last time, last time I saw something that pathetic, it was like, you know, at my old primary school when the school budget got cut. Holy shit. I could make that a fairy light some whatever twigs I could find in the back garden, especially if I stole my neighbor's plant pot. And they'd use the mirror to make it look shiny. <laughs> His servant like, holds up the mirror. Like, wow, look at it. It's so shiny. Yep. So yeah, um, one of the great tasks was indeed to find a Luma Christie. Now, they all fail. Save, I'm going to argue, and I'm saving this for the plot point, uh, sorry, the talking point later, for one who half fails, but fails in a way that is more damning than the rest. And I'll talk about that in great detail soon enough. So with all of them, like, you know, shooed away, Kaguya thinks to herself, hey, you know what? I'm f- I'm good. I should stress, by the way, I'm glossing over certain events such as oh, Kaguya's yeah. naming ceremony, uh, which will be important. There's also a deviation, funnily enough, from the source material because Kaguya is named in the source material by her father, the bamboo cutter, right away, mm. as opposed to the name that she is given by the minister um, in the film. Um, but yeah, Kaguya, like at various points throughout the film, has indeed been wanting to leave the stately life that she lives and, you know, go back to the way things were, including a dream sequence where she runs all the way back to her original home, only to find that everyone has left. And indeed, that will be mirrored uh, by a dream sequence that we'll be talking about later. But was it a dream? Sim- <laughs> it's like one of those things where, like, it, it was actually the case that everyone did leave for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
that and that running scene holy cow that scene is incredible oh my it's magnificent that scene is like just like blew my mind like it got up out of my seat it's not a get up out of your seat moment it's sad because you know this woman has been like broken by just these assholes and their flippant words but like oh my god just the way it looks is like just it's remarkable man Hmm. so kaguya after you know rejecting all of the princes one of whom who flat out dies in his you know quest to to, you know frill her uh one of them who also proves what a complete pussy he is because he thinks that a dragon is coming down from the sky when they're calling a storm (laughs) like out at sea uh by the way if you ever wanted to know like how like okay maybe this is a bad idea his sword goes flying out into the ocean and if i was thinking self i was watching this Okay, that's pretty bad. Uh, you know, you might be able to recover from this. And then the sword gets hit by lightning. <laughs> no, if that isn't a, yeah. if that isn't a sign that you are making a really, really <laughs> catastrophic error, and you might want to turn back here. I don't know what else is. He uh, he got Lady Und. <laughs> he really did get Lady Und. Actually, yeah. he was already boned, and then he got doubly boned. Just the the bone square unnecessarily piling on with the lightning. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out he's a complete wimp as well. So, you know, for all his bluster that he was going to kill a dragon, like, you know, a dragon obviously doesn't even appear. It's just an illusion caused by the cloud uh, formations. But he's just like, I'm scared of rain. Rain's scary and spooky. Ah." Honestly. But yeah, after all that, what Kaguya thinks has been a course of action to, you know, get people off her back actually only makes things worse because then she attracts the attention of the Emperor. Mikado. Yeah, so Mikado, uh, you know, pimping gold cl- uh, cloak-wearing man that he is, thinks to himself, you know what? I'll have it. And I'm, it's as blunt as that, to be quite honest. He will have her. Yep. And indeed, when he meets her, he grabs hold of her because personal boundaries to him are, you know, just a suggestion rather than, you know, a code of, you know, morals and ethics, you know, like, of, you know, things to respect. Um, but Kaguya at this point, like, has had enough and she manages to fade away from him like ghost-like because of course being a creature is not the right word sorry an alien like you know an alien I mean you know the reason maybe everyone left was because Mulder and Scully turned up you know after (laughs) sorry you know after 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 Kaguya left like you just got Mulder and Scully so so, eh. what if at that moment right whenever he grabs her and like the lights kind of turn green and she stands up here. And and of course, Scully back in the back in the old village is just like Mulder. I don't think there's anything to worry about. He goes, "Have you ever heard the bamboo alien?" (laughs) (laughs) My God. Uh, uh, So okay, yeah, no, she's she's obviously you know she's blessed by a spirit something of a spiritual nature, which is not elaborated on until a bit later. But, you know, she uses that to elude the Emperor's, like, eventually gets the hint. Like, holy shit, can you imagine this guy on, a like, a club? Oh. In fact, no, you know what, right? Have you ever seen that meme? I'm sure you, we've all seen it. Of that guy leaning into the girl's ear, like, yelling down, and she's just got that look on her face of, like, that she'd rather be anywhere else. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is essentially this entire scene. Like, I would, I really think, like, if I took the dubs out, I could probably turn it into an equivalent of that meme. Like, what do you think that he's saying to her? And, you know, 
And it could be something like, well, Pokemon Sword and Shield is actually not really that well-developed of a game, you know. I think it's actually kind of a bit of an asset rehash, if you know what oh I mean, god. right? Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so jokes aside, though. That act of uh, phasing away from the Emperor does more than that, though. It calls the attention of where Ka- of Kaguya's people, uh, the people of the moon. Not the Lunarians. The Lunarians no. are a different uh, franchise. Although the similarities are certainly very noticeable, but I'm only mentioning that because, of course, they borrow from a, you know, the common mythological vein of the Buddha and, you know, the Bodhisattva. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong as well. Cause, God, I don't even remember that. Anyway, so Kaguya reveals to her parents that because of this, the, the moon people will be coming for her to take her back. And there's nothing they can do about that. That's it. The call's been put out, you know, it's been answered, and they're coming to get her. And that's because she was so depressed and miserable with the way she'd been treated forced into this life that she didn't really want yeah now in the intervening time that between that and the moon people coming together she has or rather sutamaru one of her childhood friends and the one who you could probably mark early on as being in an alternate timeline her future partner or husband he has a dream while he's working the fields that she had come back they had met again again and that they was it a dream well, who can, it's very who suggestive. Can say? Like, uh, yeah, we just—it's intentionally like you just don't know, which is great. No, it's very ambiguous. But if nothing else, it certainly sh- serves to show us, like you know, what has been lost and what you know was taken, dream or reality. It's still something that could have been genuine. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. Like over a lo- over a longer period of time, and eventually, you know, the Buddha arrives. Uh, all of you know. Kage's father's men, like, you know, the soldiers, like, they try to fight the moon men off, and it, well, it goes about as well as you'd expect, which is to say, incredibly fucking poor. Very bad. It's like, it's like playing Civ Five, you know, and you think, so, oh yeah, you know what, I'm a bit behind, I've got my spearmen, I'll have them try and sink the, you know, the USS, like, whatever over there. There's no way that, you know, the spearmen can, like, take down a, a carrier. We'll try it anyway. <laughs> That is actually possible in Civ Five, so maybe that's not the best example. But anyway, <laughs> it's a really funny image that, like, basically the equivalent of like the interstellar ice cream cart is coming down onto Earth, and uh, yeah, it's very, it's very joyous, yeah, it's very cheap. But but they, but everyone is like firing arrows at it and everything. <laughs> no, keep your eternal happiness and life. Like you know, get away from me. The next phase of being like it's just maybe as far as the circus, and they really don't like carnies. Yes, yes, and all the arrows become I thought I told you to get out of my town, clown! (laughs) This town ain't big enough for the two of us. I'm the only clown around here. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they they try, but ultimately nothing comes of it, and Kaguya is indeed, uh, she walks up to join the Buddha, and there's a moment of regret for her parents, but she says that, you know, there's still a lot of great things and a lot of life and, and wonder to humanity, despite all the horrible stuff that's happened. But then the robe of the moon is placed over her shoulders, which takes away all the pain and all the memory, all the memories, the good and the bad, and all the pain that she felt. And with her parents crying as she flies, as she leaves, she flies off back to the moon. And one of the closing shots of the film, which pretty much was like gay stabbed through the heart for me. Yeah. Is that even despite having that robe on that supposedly has wiped all of her memories and, you know, brought back, like, you know, to a point in her past before she ever went to Earth, she still turns back mm-hmm. just for a second to look at the home that she's leaving behind. While it's playing the song 
when yep. I remember this life. Yep. And that's the point where I thought, okay, film, you didn't have to kick me in the groin. <laughs> you, you, why did you have to do that? You've, you've now, yeah. you know, uh, struck my sword with lightning, film. Yeah. But it, but indeed, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the film does end there. It's bitter to see her leave. Because we have, as I said, seen at great length in the earlier part of the film, and in little moments here and there throughout, like when Kaguya is playing with the cat, for example, in the courtyard, or the tennis game that she has, or other moments, that even within, like, you know, the crushing confines of state court and nobility, that there are still moments of genuine humanity, warmth, and wonderful, and just wonderful moments of life and living to be had. Mm-hmm. But the lesson, of course, the parents realise all too late, but they realise nonetheless, which to me is the key difference between this being like, you know, just pure misery to the bit of sweetness that I mentioned before. They realise the error of their ways. Too late for them to change anything, but they know. And that's the warning to us as well, not to repeat the mistakes they did. I'm going to be really curious now that we have arrived at the threshold here of the thematic discussion how our interpretations, like what we, what each of us got from the movie. Cause um, I have a lot of different stuff and just thinking about the movie again, like upon second viewing, like this final scene, it, it really you know, kicked me when I was down, as you said, the first time I watched it, but oh, it did, did with me as well. Yeah. But like seeing it again, it 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 doesn't do that. Like it's still life affirming to me, and still and necessary for what's good about the movie to be good. And I, if you've heard me talk about like um, you know, death, meaning, religion on our other podcasts uh, that we have done about other anime, the things I'm going to go into might like really fly in the face of that. Um, what I've said before. But this movie, it rang so true, and it was, it, what it had to say, I think it communicated so beautifully that, like, I, I'm so on board with it. Yeah, I have to say, like, if you're a father like Doc, like, I, I'm not a father myself, at least not that I know of, um, I cannot imagine how much more powerful this film must have felt because of that element to it, where it is about, you know, the hubris of parenthood and how, you know... You can go too far. So I'm going to lay my cards on the table of what I took away from this film, but I need to just get a little thing out of the way. So, Doc, have you ever heard the phrase of hammering a square peg into a round hole? Yes, indeed. Now, in theory, you can flip that phrase and say a round peg in a square hole. But there is a key difference. Holes aren't two, square. You got it right, though. <laughs> Oh god, I'm, I, this is this is how pickled my brain is. I'm so sorry, but the thing is, right? Although that is a flip of the actual phrase, there's a key difference between the two, which I think is very very important because it helps frame the central message and warning of Princess Kaguya. The one I prefer is the square peg in the round hole, because how do you get a square peg into a round hole? You sand it down. Right. You take the edges off. You take something away. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens to Kaguya throughout the film. The, the the wonderful person that she is never truly disappears. But her ability to enjoy life on her own terms and her own agency 
the simple life though it was, but a life of joy and happiness is denied her. She is forced, made to fit like, you know, tradition and a regimented lifestyle and appearances and standards and practices that don't, in this, as far as this film is concerned, have any intrinsic value. Like, they're things that we put on ourselves because it's expected, but not for any reason other than that expectation of itself. And there's a, the, the most powerful moment in the film for me, apart from the ending, Ka- when Kaguya eventually relents and allows her eyebrows to be plucked, we get a shot where in the bottom left of her corner is a quarter of her face, the upper right half you're looking straight on, where you see her eyebrow being plucked. Mm-hmm. And we have one eye, and she, she weeps one tear when that happens. Right. Now, here's the thing. I've never had my eyebrows plucked. I've, I've, I've been hit in the head with a glass bottle that caused me to bleed out of an eyebrow. That's a different event entirely, and it wasn't done professionally, that much is sure. Um, but still, I can imagine it being painful. But for me, the way I read that scene, and the reason it hit me so hard was, I don't think Kaguya in that moment was just weeping simply because, ow, my eyebrows are being put. Right. But because she recognised what this moment was costing her. It was costing her the like a, such a substantial part of who she was and her ability to define herself and act as the person she wanted to be. She was weeping for the loss of a part of her humanity or her soul even. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. But that is the lesson the film is imparting here. That her her parents, her father in particular, like he's the one who pushes the most for all this. Yes. Yeah, he has the best of intentions in doing this. He wants her, you know, it's like to live a good and comfortable life. But he could not see the forest for the trees, funnily enough, on how he was doing the exact opposite in the end, by taking away the good life she already had out of hubris. The noblest of intentions, born from, you know, the purest and most wonderful of emotions of of love. And it still sanded her down. I mean, the film, like, when I mentioned before about, like, the opening 30 minutes or so, there's a number of scenes in which we see bowls being crafted. Like, you know, furniture being made out of bamboo. Right. Where does Kaguya come from? Kaguya comes from bamboo as well. And while, you know, bamboo itself is not sapient or animated, it doesn't mean we can shape people like we shape, you know, the, the, the furnishings and, you know, the ornaments of life that we have. We can't force or shouldn't force people to be things they are not. No, oh, yeah. Um, I... Wow, this is so funny. Because... I agree that this is um, an element, like a thematic element in the movie, and I think it's an important one. But I would not say that like this is what the movie is about. So mm-hmm. I'm very like, yeah, I'm again, I'm so curious moving forward, um, what our differences might be and what we've seen it. But, but no, I so since you're on this point, yeah, I mean, I definitely have like notes here on you know parents forcing on their children their own value system, their own definitions of happiness, what they know is best, right? I mean, you know, as a dad, like if I came into a bunch of money, of course I would use it to... Buy yourself a giant boat. Well, no, no, that that's not what I would do. Um, oh, come on! I would use it to make sure that, like, my kids had a good and comfortable life. But, again, I'm 
I'm working with what I, and the bamboo cutter is the same, he's working with what he considers to be the happiest life. And as you say, her joy, Kaguya's joy, shrinks and it narrows the things that, you know, the spaces in her life in which she can find joy drastically reduce um, as the movie goes on. Yeah, even when, for example, she plants a garden to try and, like, evoke that sense of being back in, you know, at home, like, you know, to the point where she makes little, like, features, Mm -hmm. like the bridge, for example. In the end, she just decries it as a fake, because that's all it is. It is a it is a simulacrum. Now, there's a word I don't get to use very often. <laughs> Check me and my vocabulary Ooh. out. Uh, no, but it but it's a simulacrum. It's 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 a facsimile. It's a nisemono. Right. Yep. Nisemono. Correct. Hey, check out my Japanese vocabulary Ayo, as well. There you go. I'm on a I'm on a roll tonight. You are. Yeah. You, know, you you can't hit, see it, but balloons just started falling from the, the ceiling. <laughs> confetti in my in my room. Where's my yeah. confetti? Absolutely. So. Even then, as you say, like, that's, yeah, like, for all her attempts to try and, you know, do that, she's still confined by the systems that she's caught in. Yeah. And can't really escape them. At least not until, like, you know, she goes too far in calling for the moon folk. Yeah, even, it, I think it's even debatable if she enjoys playing the Kodo, which, because, you know, when she's doing it, she always looks so serious and she's incredibly good at it. Everyone says, like, that's oh, such a beautiful music. Um, hmm. one person even says that the melody is out of this world, which is great, which is a really funny bit of foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, but yeah, it just, you know, once she's in the mansion, you know, originally she's running around and it's great, but then she can't do that. You know, a princess is not meant to stand up even, let alone be angry or be joyful or express themselves. So, you know, when she can play like badminton, I think is like one of the only times she's like laughing when she's an a, a young adult in the mansion. Rather, well, but, Doc, do you reckon? Um, do you reckon Canute ever got to play badminton oh with Ragnar? <laughs> same, same thing, same idea. I know. But and it's such a contrast that before, like she was taking joy in like every aspect of her life, and I will talk about her childhood. I have a big thing about it, but like, but yeah, and then Dad, you know. And the teacher, uh, much less so the mother, but basically the adults in her life were just like, well, happiness is assured by marrying. And you have these other people measuring what happiness is for Kaguya, these other value systems. And like, it's funny, like, it, it you can tell it feels really strange to her. And it's always going to feel really strange to you attempting to be happy according to other people's metrics. Like, you know, if I said to you, Shadon, here's the secret to a good life. Here's what I need you to do. Like go buy two onions and like hold them above your head while you stand in knee deep, uh, bucket of chicken noodle soup. Like it's weird. Okay. That sounds bizarre. Um, I just have to nip out for uh, 45 minutes. Folks. Stop. You keep talking. I'll be right back. <laughs> but like it, it may sound, I think it, these sort of sound, it sounds similar to Kaguya. I mean, maybe not as as absurd as my example, but like when people are like, "This is what's going to make you happy," just sounds bizarre. And she, I mean, she could do it and go through the motions, but it wouldn't make her happy. No, exactly. And indeed, is frames us in the same manner is framed as you know the absurdity that it is. 
I mean, even with the like the princes who opposite <laughs> the one prince in particular whose sentiment is not so much fake as incredibly misguided, mm-hmm. we still recognize it for what it is. And if it, you say like this material is from the 10th century, it's really progressive if you think about it like that. Like you know, as, as a warning not to you know allow uh, people to be shackled to like you know ways of living that are contrary to what their mm. you know best natures are like you know what their the best thing is for them for, that they determine for themselves that is very interesting and i think that you know it's certainly against the credit to takada for making it feel personal rather than just simply having kaguya be this mythological deity who looks human but is not otherwise portrayed in a human way mm-hmm. like you know with human behaviors and desires totally Totally. If I if I may, I'm also going to now elaborate on the prince I've wanted to talk about. Oh, can I before oh, you do on. that, just uh, just two more uh, brief sentences, really quickly on this matter of the parents and you know knowing what's best. Because you're right, it did. Like as a dad, I was I, I felt pretty called out, you know, a couple times. Like because it's really easy to see for us, the audience, that there comes a point when dad kind of transitions from thinking about Kaguya's happiness to thinking about his own happiness. Oh, yeah, I get to be part of the emperor's court. Uh, I get to be a minister. Like, this is going to be amazing for me. And um, that happens slowly over time to him, and he probably doesn't realize it, but we, since we see it the way we do, it's pretty obvious. And God, I just don't want that to happen to myself as a parent. I mean, when she refuses to wed the emperor... And she refuses to go to his palace. Her father says, what are you doing? You can't, you can't, oh no, it's not then. I'm sorry. It's when she's saying she's going to go back to the moon people or something. One of those two scenes, basically her dad says, all I've ever wanted to do was to make you happy. That's all I've ever wished for you. And she says, and this tore me up, Shadon. She says, all this happiness you wished for me has been hard to bear. And, that just cut me right to the to the heart. Hubris.mp4 right there, folks. You can have, like you said, this intentions that are so good and you can feel like you're so right, but you, these burdens and expectations that fathers and mothers can put on their kids in this way. I mean, it. I'd like to think I'm doing an okay job, but I mean, God, like I did, yeah. do not want to do, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, put some kind of uh, that kind of value system on top of my, like this overarching thing that my kid has to live up to. Mm. I don't, I just don't want to do that. I mean, that's how um, oppressive when you're not even trying to do that. But the key is, is you just have to remain tuned in to what your child wants and remain open to the idea that you might not actually like know what the best thing is for your child as they're sort of growing up and becoming their own person. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where it's never wrong to question it. It's never wrong to take a step back. doesn't mean necessarily that you'll have a different answer. Maybe you, in that particular moment, do know that, hey, uh, Tim, uh, LSD? <laughs> the LSD? The LSD you got there? No. No. Like Indeed, no. I understand. Yeah. Um so no, I, I hear you also. And I think also part of it that we might need to address is the fact that Kaguya is indeed a person of a divine origin. 
So in some way, maybe you could then interpret the bamboo cutter's intentions as being based on that, that because she is of divine origin, she deserves like, you know, something beyond what you might otherwise consider for a regular human. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe, maybe. But I think that, you know, the main message of it, you know, regardless of her origins is still very potent and very like, you know, it's, it's always going to be relevant because we will always be blinded, like, you know, by our love for others when we sometimes realize we're going too far, mm-hmm. you know, or we might have realized we're going too far. Like how many times have crimes of passion happened because, you know, love took, love turned toxic or, well, no, I'm not saying that happened in the film, of course, but you can see how like even something that starts as some, as pure and, and wholesome as love can really, really hurt someone. And you it might can. not even realize it's too late as the film, you know, warns us here. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, so princes. Let's talk about princes. So there are five princes, and four of them I'm not going to bother talking about in great detail because they exist mostly as gags. Yes. But there is one prince in particular that I thought was really, really telling about all of their behaviors, but how he was also so close to actually being like I was actually convinced he was the good one. I sort of was too. <laughs> and so was like he really broke Kaguya's heart too. Yeah. So one of the princes is asked to get the a stone that belongs to the the Buddha. I don't remember the, what the name of the stone is exactly. It's uh, the the um the bowl, the bowl of the Buddha. <laughs> oh, my apologies. Uh yeah, the bowl, sorry. Uh the bowl of the Buddha. Uh you know, where he had his uh, Kellogg's conflict <laughs> every morning. You know? <laughs> Buddha owes. <laughs> <laughs> fruit flavor the most divine breakfast <laughs> a breakfast that'll make you feel like you've entered nirvana they're probably not a weight loss breakfast no, though, to be fair no. if the buddha's eating it's true. sorry that's really really rude of me i'm sorry i'm sure the buddha doesn't mind too much though you know ah he's fine oh, sh- <laughs> i'm sure he's fine um so anyway the prince uh he doesn't actually come back with even a fake bowl he says outright i couldn't get it but you know what i saw this flower and this flower reminded me of you and i thought i'd bring it back as a symbol of your beauty and how it you know i've never you've never left my thoughts and why don't we go somewhere else why don't we leave this place leave all this behind what i found really really incredible about this moment is that the flower is perfectly representative of what he will do to kagia because bear in mind, Kagia is, you know, from a bamboo stock. She technically is a flower in some respects. Right. So the analogy is perfectly overlaid. He will, without her consent, rip her up, uproot her even, and take her somewhere where she may not be happy with. It's not her going to be her decision to make in the end. And I thought that was really powerful because in his case, like all oh, the others, like, Oh, here's my here's my fake shit, you know, that I ordered off Amazon Prime. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, here's, here's all the, here's all here's all this here's all this crap, like you know, like the aluminum Christmas tree. <laughs> yes. But he actually has a noble intention that is still, at least as far as I read it, still like you know, the, the, bathed in hubris, like best of intention, but the, he doesn't understand, like you know. Kaguya enough to realize that it's a terrible idea what he's doing to just take it somewhere without her con- like you know consent or input. Also, he has another wife, at least one more wife. 
Yeah, that's so, also a bit of a deal breaker. So he's like, you know, because, because, uh, and it's not just that, because I think a couple of the other officials slash princes have said like, oh, they have concubines and wives. And maybe that was the thing back then. But like, the, specifically, like the, the first wife says... Um, oh, I really missed that when you did that for me. Is this another flower you're going to pluck and take and hide away in some like remote location and then leave her for a different... So it's it's clear like he just, you know, is in the business of uh, whisking young girls away and then, you know, probably leaving them, uh, top, putting them aside whenever the new hot young thing comes into his life. Mm-hmm. So he's a console gamer then. <laughs> That's the, that's the, that is the hardest I have ever had to try to keep from spitting on my computer. Oh my god. It almost happened. Worth it. Holy shit. Totally worth it. Yeah, he's a gamer. Oh, worth it. Totally worth it. But yeah, like, I appreciate that granularity switch that, all, that not all of the princes were as nakedly, like, you know, transparent. Yeah. I mean, as you say, like, that... I mean, it's not something I approve of, of course, but maybe the you know the multiple wives thing was a thing of the time. But I still think the core idea, like you know, of him wanting to take Kaguya somewhere else, like good intentions, but not you know ultimately understanding her agency or you know her input on it. And I I thought that was a really really neat like you know angle on it as opposed to all of them simply providing her with fake items. Yeah, and there was one who we don't really know because he died in pursuit of the the shell i mean maybe he was like a good dude you know i don't really i don't really know and that that devastates kaguya like i can't believe someone is dead because of me and that causes her to have an emotional breakdown but yeah it was cool that like not all of the princes were like either like complete cads or the same kind of cad you know what i mean yeah and indeed, Kaguya's lesson in all of this, like, it's quite on point in that they don't want to, like, you know, marry her as such. They want to possess yes. her. But she points out through, like, you know, sending them after these things, like, that they know, it proves how little they know of the world, like, that they think these things exist when they don't. Much in the same way that they know so little about her, but only are really interested because of her status and this kind of, like, you know, almost mythologized reputation that's been built of her, of her beauty. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's... They just want the thing that's difficult to get. And so it's a beautiful thing. But, um, you know, be, because she's so beautiful and the rumors and no one's seen her, they initially want her. And then they still want her, even more so, I think, after they've been given these impossible tasks and they're away for three years trying to figure out how to do this, despite the fact that they know. I think they actually know that they're impossible and these things don't exist. Um, And the emperor too is his infatuation only grows. The more he feels like he, he can't have her or she's not willing. And Mm. that possession I think is, is the right word. A challenge. Yes. Yes. A a challenge. God. Um, Okay. So, can I start to talk about um, some of the things that like, I think are yes. are core to the movie? So I want to talk about childhood and the Garden of Eden and 
beauty, meaning, all that sort of thing. So, so childhood for Kaguya, extremely important part of the movie in retrospect. When you're watching it for the first time, like you said, Shadon, you might be thinking, this is very pretty, but like, what is, um, what a- it's even slow, arguably. Yeah. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, what, what are you supposed to latch onto here apart from the aesthetic charms? Well, you know, you, you have, uh, like we said, like this girl learning to walk from the frogs. You have, you know, this vignette of uh, the taste of a stolen melon with your, with your friend. You have a childhood spent in nature among animals um, hum, uh, human and beast interacting and like you said very mm-hmm. positive it's very idyllic um, and it, this whole thing with man or sorry human beings and animals seemingly harmoniously living together made me think of the Garden of Eden a kind of paradise and of course human beings were given the boot from paradise just as mm. all human beings are given the boot from childhood we can't stay children forever uh, as we grow up responsibility comes into our lives we become responsible for things other than our own immediate happiness right um and our sort of straightforward way of being has to morph and some dishonesty has to come into it uh to make your way through the world and you know kaguya loses her innocence like going to the village becoming a woman trying to become a proper lady and struggling with it and wanting to kind of buck against that and be free to run and frolic you know is symbolic of um adolescence and and a person who doesn't want to grow up and leave behind the freedom and you know, the joy um, of childhood it- if I may say, uh, you can see that reflected with Susamaru as well in the yes. dream, quote-unquote. Yeah. Because when Susamaru comes out of that dream, and indeed before he actually goes into it, again, dream, quote-unquote, mm. could very well have happened, we see he has a wife and child. So you might think to yourself, whoa, whoa, steady on, lad. Like, you know, you, you've already <laughs> right. got some. You've got someone. Just because, you know, your old, flame is, <laughs> your, your old flame has swung back round again. Don't be going for that. But maybe that is indeed the intent of it, to warn that there can be no going back. So that could point. be, could for sure. And there is, and this is not me saying that the joy is gone out of life, but just that, you know, recapturing it, uh, recapturing childhood specifically. Well, there's a couple scenes in the movie where she tries to do it. And mm. I think that they're just incredible scenes, especially the second time. Uh, uh, I'm going to say them out of chronological order. I'll do them in order of uh, sort of least important to most important, the two scenes. So, you know, she, like you said, she's got her garden, her piece of the garden that she's borrowing from her mom. And like you said, she kind of makes it into a likeness of her childhood home. And there's this part where uh, her mom is like, oh, the garden, it's looking really overgrown and, you know, it's crazy today. And she's like, well, actually, come down here. And they bend over and they're like, look at it from this new perspective. Doesn't it remind you of the way things used to be? Sure, I can, uh, from above, I can tell that it's not that. But if you get down here and look, it's like we're back there again. And right before that, she, when she's doing her, her spinning, she found a grasshopper. 
And she took that grasshopper and put him in her garden, her little Eden. And Mm. later on, I didn't catch this till the second time I was watching it. Once she's explaining that, hey, dad, uh, if disobedience to the emperor is means me dying, then kill me. She finds she picks up that same grasshopper who's died. You Mm. can't last forever. You can't take things out of their natural environment and place it somewhere where they don't belong. Or even if the grasshopper did belong in the garden, it's going to die one day. Mm. It's going to, you know, everything ends. Childhood, adulthood. And there's, I think, a scene where it's even clearer, where she's trying to recapture her joy when all the suitors have gone for the first time and her teacher is leaving and she and her head servant, who I think it fucking rules. I don't know her name, but she's great. The little girl. She's probably the only one who treats her like a regular human I being. I know. Much of she rules. But her, Kaguya, and Kaguya's mother go back home. She, she cleans her teeth off. She takes off all her makeup. And she's like, I'm going back. I'm going to recapture this joy now that I've got these suitors out of my life. And she goes to a cherry blossom tree. Now, cherry blossoms traditionally are in Japan like these very um it's sort of known that they're like a symbol of mono no aware, like fading beauty because because they're only very brief indeed. They? They, only... they bloom so bright and beautiful but it doesn't last at all and and that's kind of part of what makes them beautiful is the brevity of it and but she runs to the cherry blossom tree and she's running around it and she's laughing and spinning. And then all of a sudden she she hits the the baby. And the baby falls and the baby's crying and mom, you know, bows to her. Sorry, princess, sorry. And she's like remembers her situation. She's a princess now. Back to harsh reality. She's not a baby anymore. And she can't enjoy this in that same completely free way you could enjoy it as a child, her childhood is gone. You know, Eden has been closed off to her. But like the cherry blossoms, I think, that's what makes it beautiful. And that's what she comes to realize at the end of the movie, that, you know, life is painful and things are unfair and things can be harsh and and you have to grow up and and it sucks but that's like part of what makes it amazing and glorious and and beautiful like eden is eden because it doesn't last childhood is eden and beautiful because it can't last and and it's there's another kind of connection you know you talked about her running with sudamaru and kind of flying through the sky the the piece that they play during that scene when she's back at her home with him it's called the joy of life and mm. it's the same piece of music slightly differently arranged as the beginning music that plays when she's a baby and she's a, a tiny child so it's like her everyday happiness as a child is linked to her newfound joy for life although i i'm gonna disagree here doc because for me i think that she was just really happy she finally got to live out her dream of you know doing the whole Superman and Lois Lane shit from the first Rich, uh, Christopher Reeves movie. <laughs> Please. <laughs> oh my god. What a wet blanket you are. Trying to be all eloquent and you're bringing up the Superman movies? <laughs> Jesus. 
<laughs> I, I am the Mephistopheles of this podcast. Oh my god. You know it to be true. Oh my god. But yeah, that's um that's all I had to say for that point and and why I think why that the end like is now affirming to me like because and the, the kind of circular nature of it and that the it's the ending and the and and all that is required i think to to make it to to give it meaning and give it beauty you know what i mean like the cherry blossom yeah, yeah. i i agree wholeheartedly on all that i mean there's a very good reason that kagi still gets those moments where it's not entirely a crushing, like, you know, nightmare from start to end. There are moments sprinkled throughout where she gets to be herself, even inside, like, the confines of the mansion and the confines of what's expected inside that space. And another thing to note um, is that when the naming ceremony is due to happen, the gentleman who comes to name her, like, he sees her frolicking with the cat, and her father is all like, oh, oh no, d- d- I'm yes. terribly sorry, how uncouth from... And he's like, it's fine. She's very energetic. It's cool. It'll help me name her better to see her in her natural state. Yeah, indeed. And that is part of it, like, you know, the pageantry and all that, like, even inside of it, there's still, are of not necessarily pageantry, rather, but crushing reality, I suppose, and expectations. There's still joy to be found. And keep an eye out for it. Like, you know, don't forget, I mean, hell, this is why I was told in therapy. Like, you know, there's so much good stuff happening that you just need to take a step back and, and see it. And that that will give you strength to keep going because you'll remind yourself of all the good things that happen. Now, not to say, of course, that, you know, the, out- the outcome of this film should have been that Kaguya should have just, well, s- stuck with it. <laughs> you know, the dead-end job situation of being caught, like, you know, as this princess who can't do anything she wants. No, gosh, no. I think she realizes she hadn't been really living. You know what I mean? No. There still needed to be an out, but I think it's just a you know, it's worth reminding that there were good parts to that. Yes. Oh, yes, for sure. It, that's that's such a key point of, of um, what the movie, yeah, is trying to say, that, like, life is really hard sometimes, but in its hardness, there's still like there are still good things. Can we talk about fake versus real? Because I think this is super. Oh important. boy! Oh boy! Yes, we can. So Kaguya feels like a fake to herself. Um, the old imposter syndrome, right? Um, <laughs> she she's become a princess. Like she's she's bought it, right? And even the the ministers before the namer man starts talking about how incredible she is that that she, you know, re, you know, it was like a dead fountain came to life again inside him (laughs) before he says all that. uh, They're sort of hesitant. They're like, well, she's not a princess by birth like us. She's not for us. You know what I mean? And, you know, you have the people during the naming ceremony I talk about. It's, and as, as you've pointed out in in the mansion, it feels like she's being forced into a round hole as a square peg. She feels like like a fake, and it turns out. I mean, it, there's and I have so many questions. I think about this uh, this whole dichotomy here, Shadon. Let me just ask you. Like, thing I was thinking of as I watched it, it's like, you know, she's calling herself a fake princess, right? But like, what makes you? What is it that makes you whatever you are? 
Like, if you wake up in the morning and everyone is treating you a certain way, like you're a princess or uh, your name is a different name uh, or, or anything, like, does that make it true? Does that make it so for you? Like, the group perception, right? The, like, if everyone starts doing something that we've all thought is unreasonable, does that make it reasonable? You know what I mean? Does the emperor really have an incredibly awesome outfit on? If everyone says he does, right? <laughs> like, when does she yeah. does she go to becoming a real princess? Like, at what point is that? I think for me, it's a question of agency again, like a decision. Like, if you decide to do that, then that's fine. I mean, take for example all of the makeup and such that um, sorry, in tongue side here that Sagami wears. Like, yeah, I don't have an issue with that makeup style or any makeup in general or any kind of that vanity like that in a vacuum. But it has to be a choice that you make, I would argue. Like, if you want to look like that, and that is truly your own decision, and then we can always argue, of course, like, well, at what point is that true and not, you know, a bias or a preconceived notion that you've had for all your life? Yeah. Um, but if it is your choice and you've decided on it as free as you can be from that bias or that unconscious decision-making process or the unconscious leanings you have, then that's fine. If Kaguya truly wants to be a princess for her own benefit, even though the film does not present many benefits for her, who are we to argue with that? Obviously, her uh, you know perspective was the exact opposite. I know. The other side of this question is like, what if you don't want to become something? Like, you are performing. You're faking it, but you're like, you know what? No, like, there's a part of me in here that's not this, that... I will own that's the really real part of me but I'm just but you do it for so long actually you become it like you're kind of drug yeah. into it and and that may be what the film is saying growing up is even if you don't want to you're drugged there kicking and screaming I but it's just made me think about this hmm I agree I mean to get a little personally like I was recently dating someone and I had the option to continue doing that or not and I chose not to because I didn't feel it was right for me to, you know, I mean, certainly I felt like, you know, it would have given me a short term happiness to continue dating someone. But for many reasons, like I wasn't, con I didn't feel like it would have been healthy for me to be in that particular relationship. I don't think it would have worked out for me in terms of like how truly compatible I was with this lady. And, you know, the alternative would be, well, hey, I'll just put up with it. You know, it'll give me that kind of, you know, faux happiness hmm. so i can totally get i can totally get behind that and i think that you know maybe if i had then stuck with that out in the end maybe i would have become so used to it that i would have forgotten the anxiety in the first place but that wouldn't be the same as them having never been there they would still be there it still wouldn't be right but i would have just accepted it and that to me is not an ideal scenario to be in yes no 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 so Gosh, it's it's funny the contrast between her right, who believes that she is a fake princess, like she's not really that, and all the ministers slash princes who are like, hey, we are we're like the awesome royal people, but like they don't exhibit the the character uh, that you would normally uh, assume will be befitting of of someone of yeah. that station. They certainly can't back up their words with actions. Indeed, you're for, we're forgetting also, I should note, 
what about the bamboo cutter himself? I know! That is his role. (laughs) But he so readily embraces, like, the, you know, the royalty and all the, you know, the varnishings that go with that. Like, the first time that we see him after he arrives in the capital, when Kaguya wakes up, he's already wearing the makeup. He's already halfway there. And indeed, later on, we see Kaguya working the bamboo stripper, um, which is itself like an activity that harkens back to her wanting back to, to be back where she belongs. He doesn't work the bamboo anymore, really, at that point. Yeah. And he always has the, uh, keeps, like, the dumb hat. He keeps hitting on the door. He can't ever get used to it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But that that just shows, like, you know, how falling into that pattern where you put on this air, if you will, this personality or this role that is not suited for you, that, yeah, you might get used to it. You might even think you're happy or or it's good for you. But it's not just a question of, like, you know, whether or not it's right for you. It's whether or not it's right for others. Because in doing so, he then puts her in the situation she's in against her wishes. Yes. Yes. Fakeness cannot just destroy you, it can destroy other people. Right, right. I mean, and there's like, there's a couple different messages that might seem like they conflict, right? Like, I think the thing with the bamboo cutter is telling us you can try to become something completely different from who you are, but who you are will, will be what it will be. It will continue to come through. And so, like, perception or quote-unquote fakeness, like, is not this completely objective with a capital O real type thing. There's still a deeper reality about our natures and and kind of our, um, our inner lives as people and who we are. But I also do think the fact that, I mean, Kaguya, like, is fighting against becoming an adult, but she but she does become it so like we are we are shaped by the world even if we don't want to be to some degree you know you know i find also fascinating note that kagi's aging stops and starts in fits and doesn't happen again after she goes to the capsule she stops like aging in spurts mm, yeah yeah it does seem to be more natural then yeah yeah i think that might be you know like that sure like you know living might burn you out quicker maybe but at the same time, like, you know, her growing up, like, was when she was happiness. She was happiest, you know. Exactly, yeah. And she feels like we talked about this tremendous guilt for being a fake. And that her father, you know, is caught up in that as well as, as the person who was the prime mover in getting the situation to be the way it was. Like, when that guy falls and breaks his back is when she goes and destroys her garden and tells her mom, like, maybe, you know... It's my fault. Everyone is miserable because I'm a fake. Like, may- and she's mm. like, like, maybe if I were a real princess, she would want the things a real princess would want, I think is the implication. Maybe she'd want to get married. And then that guy wouldn't have, even if she married someone else, that guy wouldn't have gone on that crazy journey to get that, uh, the egg. And he would have lived. Like, th- that all this is affecting people. So, so I guess it's like, so you might say like, oh, who cares about like, um, the the real fake label but like it's because of this like you said that other people get affected and get hurt but i do think ultimately i i really like i really do think that ultimately the movie actually says to me right now after two viewings that the real fake distinction actually doesn't matter 
at all because it's not just that she's a fake princess, right? Who's, who's bought mm-hmm. uh, her way into it or whatever. She's a quote unquote fake earthling <laughs> as well. You're, you, you know, you're, I hadn't even thought of that. And it's so obvious, but you're right. It, she's not of this earth. She's always been, um, different in some way or another. Indeed, as Nate noted, when she's growing up in those spurs, the kids see that they are aware of it. It is something that marks her out as unusual and gives her the name of little bamboo. Cause they say she grows up like a bamboo, mm-hmm. uh, you know, grows really fast. So that always marks her out as different in some way or another. And I, and I see where you're coming from there. Like in the, but in the end she was still, you know, well, the, certainly the most human yes. person that there was, I would argue yes. in the film. Yeah. Like the, apart from, apart from the other kids in Sutsumaru, I suppose, but like living in that environment, like, you know, she was shaped into that a person and then was tried to, to be shaped again into something else. So maybe, the, maybe it's not the argument that, you know, oh, you should never try to shape a child like that you're raising into a certain thing. But perhaps maybe you need to be very careful and cognizant of what you're trying to shape them into. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, like you said, she's the most, the most human. Like she's, deeply feels uh, joy and grief and all these feelings and and has a a love and zest for for life and for nature and the earth and other people. I mean, if she's she's a fake human, I mean, what are we, right? I mean, she's like, the only thing that marks her out, she's just passing through, right, on her way from the moon to the moon. But that's, that's no different from us. <laughs> we just came from somewhere different, but we're just passing through. Maybe the thing that we need to delineate here is that it's not a question of being a fake something, but rather being a fake someone, like as in a fake you, sure, so to speak. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a different, yet yeah, totally. Yes, 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 yes. Completely. I think that is a good distinction. But the, the, the point I wanted to drive at with that, with the something is I think, that, and this is going to uh, kind of uh, attach itself to the point that I made about childhood Eden and cherry blossoms. You know, her her is a quote-unquote fake earthling, right? Just passing through uh, from the moon on the way back to the moon. She was on, she was on summer camp, you know? Right, yes. Yes, she's temper But like, you can look at that like you would look at any other life. And in, in looking at it in that way, like, Everything is temporary. So ultimately nothing is really fake because we're all just in a different phase. We're all just playing a role, a temporary kind of passing through of a certain stage of our lives. When did you figure out that I'm a Russian spider and will whip my face mask off? That's one that I'm going through my phase right now where I'm pretending to be a British wannabe anime critic. No, I, I kid, I kid, I kid. But no, you're right. I mean... Hell, one of the things I've always found fascinating about my own development as a person is I can actually look back and very clearly mark out different stages of my life where I felt like I was uh-huh. a different version of myself and where I feel like I've iterated and improved on since then and also where I've kind of had my pitfalls that, you know, some of which have come along and some of which have not. So, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, maybe it's a question of just finding yourself and maybe even rediscovering what was good about you, like, early on 
in your life that you want to you know retain you want to keep the best parts of yourself even as you grow older yes and and then kind of whatever station you occupy like whatever role you're playing in life need not make you feel like a fake because that's what we're all doing even you know cosmically speaking like we're just temporarily playing the role of like human beings who are alive Hmm. so yeah the important thing like you said is to to find yourself and to to live as i'll talk about in a moment to to really to live to answer back to the universe by being alive as she so beautifully puts it Mm, yeah i think by the the end of the movie especially with her uh kind of rendezvous with uh sutemaru we see that like she has this newfound like appreciation for for life and she's come to this because she knows her time is short she knows it's not going to go on and on and on forever she's had this kind of Heideggerian style encounter with death, so to speak. Mm. Um, going to the moon is basically the equivalent of dying. And so like I said, she's got this this new joy um, that is different from the childhood joy, but something that you can still embrace. You can embrace life while realizing that it's not everlasting. Um, and you can see living life as the only possible answer to the unfair and fleeting nature of it. I mean, this is a thing that, you know, if you're feeling existential, it's easy to get down about, I think. Um, yeah. The unjust, uh, unfair nature of life. The fact that it is fleeting, that it'll just be gone. I mean, it's... Yes, yeah, it's hit me very hard at various points in my life. I can definitely assess And, that. like, seeing Kaguya grow so quickly, like, as a dad, I'm thinking, like, well, yeah, this is, like, outsized and unnatural, but it really does feel like that. You're you're gonna blink and your yes. children will be you know They're graduating already, from it's college. It's insanity, dude. It's crazy that it gets like yeah. sand through your fingers for real, you know. And and she's feeling down about her own situation a lot in the movie, rightfully so. But like when she sees Sudamaru like get the shit kicked out of him for stealing a chicken. Oh, can I just very quickly intervene and say I love that they foreshadowed that by having him catch the pheasant at the start of the film. Like, it's such a minor thing, but they still did it. They still linked it together mm-hmm, in that way. Mm-hmm. He stilts his old trick, stealing poultry. Yeah, I know. He'd back at it. And she remembers that. Like, that makes a deep impression on her. And when she's talking to him later, you know, she talks about, she brings it up. And she's seen it in a new light now that she is not despairing. Like, once she has kind of had her epiphany about, like, l- truly embracing life because of its fleeting nature you know she talks about she i saw you get beat up and he's like oh that's really nothing and she says like that's right it's nothing if you answer back to that injustice by being alive and like there may not be the satisfactory kind of mathematical equation style answer or like this argument about like god's goodness prevailing or anything like that as to like why there is suffering in the world or why there's an unjust world but living your life through the suffering beyond the suffering and not giving up saying like you didn't break me like that stands as an answer to it as like a counterpoint to that unfair unjust unjust rather pain like that is telling you give up i'm gonna break you like i'm gonna like 
it's things are going to keep happening to you despite you being good because this world, this universe is not fair. But by being alive, you get to say, no, you don't win. Like, I'm living. I continue to live. And it's like the way it's communicated. I'm not doing it any justice at all, but the way it's communicated in the movie is like, just, it made me feel so alive. And just like, wow, you know, like this, it it just spoke to me as like someone who is depressed a lot of the time about the state of the world and it's kind of unfairness. And, you know, I think about like why a lot of the time and what, you know, is there anything that could make that worth it? Or like, how does a person live in the face of this? And I think this movie is moving toward an answer that just resonates with me deeply. And I feel it works for me that like the answer you answer back by being alive. And I just found that like, it just bowled me over, man. It really did. Yeah. I, I hear you on that. I mean, Kaguya after all could have called out Samoon at any particular time, I suppose, which was, which would be the end for her. Like that's the end of her conceptually as we know her, because like, her, you know, she stops being Kaguya when the, the robe comes mm-hmm. on. That arguably could be taken as her death. But indeed, like, you know, by sticking around that part like that long um, and having all the good moments that she did and showing also the potential that was otherwise, you know, there, it keeps us, it it reminds us to be open-minded to the possibilities of the future and that there are still going to be great and even wonderful things just around the corner. We just have to believe they'll be there and just keep out. It's kind of faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's certainly something that sustained me throughout a substantial part of my adult life when I just kind of couldn't help but connect the dots together, you know, like everything was going wrong and it was always going wrong all the time. God, I, if you're my therapist, by the way, or my former therapist and you listen to this, I'm so sorry that I'm having to repeat what I've talked about previously. <laughs> and I'm also really sorry I, f- I flubbed up that homework that you sent me that, oh shit, which I'm saying that out loud. <laughs> we'll edit that out in post. I, I'm the one editing this, I'm probably going to forget that. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I kid, I kid. Um, so yeah, no, it, I, I agree with you on that. I think that a part of me still thinks that maybe the idea of it being a warning for people is the most strong is the strongest part because Kaguya does in the end cease to be, I suppose is the phrase for it. So it seems still to me more pertinent as a warning for us. That does not make your interpretation of it wrong by any means, though, Doc. I think that if nothing else, maybe the now warning also would be like, hey, you know what? There's still great things out there. There's still time. Because in fact, now that I think about it, Kaguya's call to the moon, that was a reflexive action that she took. Like she had, she was pushed to that point by the emperor, and then called out, and she regressed it almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, and if she did not, if she did not call out to the moon, if she didn't have uh, an end date that was apparent to her, she she wouldn't. She would have continued to be sad. She would have continued to be destitute, depressed. You know, mm. a man has died because of me, and now, like, the emperor is after me. But, you know, it's it's because she ceases to be, or she leaves this life. I mean, like, the movie isn't saying she ceases to be. It's just, like, she loses kind of all of her memories. It, she goes on to whatever the next part of life is, in, uh, not on this earth. Um, but it's it's because of that that she's able to like have the best some some of the best moments of her life of her adult life and recontextualize everything about her life and what life means to her it, you know if she wasn't going to quote unquote die 
she wouldn't have had any of that. And again, it goes, I think, goes back to like the fleeting nature of it. That maybe we have to be cognizant of how flimsy, uh, of how fleecing it is in order to truly appreciate it. Yeah, and if she and if she didn't, mm. if she wasn't spirited away, so to speak, no pun intended, then like that part of the message would have no bite. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you on that. Now that now that you put it like that, I mean, there's a lot of you know things in my past that I regret not doing or not trying at the time, seizing the moment. But isn't that isn't the like eternity or whatever you know the next phase? It seems so scary and like. Well, this is this is what you and I discussed way back when when we were talking about Kusugiga, that eternity can be very boring and very mundane in mm-hmm. the end. Yes, it seems terrible. Like just that they put the robe on her and it just you see you see everything go out of her the emotion and the memories the air, the air, the air just goes oh, out it's yeah. just, it's so what a brutal moment and the parents are crying despite i mean her like spending her last moments with the, it's oh my god like it's so i mean parents outliving the kids is uh that's a tough one for me you know as as longtime listeners of the pod will know that that's a that's a tough moment but but again, I think in the in the larger uh, context of the film, I, I think it was necessary to to make the other bits uh, ring true um, and feel mm. feel genuine and not kind of naive platitudes, right? Yeah, I have a couple of other miscellaneous uh, bits and bobs. If go on. So it, it's funny that I think Kaguya's birth, like it's. It's so uh, extraterrestrial or just miraculous. And it's like <laughs> treated as this crazy thing in the movie as it should be. And appropriately enough, I feel like, like all under just, this is just life beginning. Like this is just how it is, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, life is a miracle always when it begins. Yeah. It's an incredible thing, whether it's through a bamboo stalk or through other traditional means. <laughs> yeah. And for some people, it might not be something that you plan, but hey, uh, here it yeah. is. You can't ignore yes. it. And to the bamboo cutter's credit, he doesn't. It's only when he has the higher notions of what to do next that things go wrong. But he, you know, he still takes care of her. He still cradles her. Like, she's tiny. So little. She's she's so small. So little. Like, should put her in the Pokeball. <laughs> Jesus. Keep him safe, you know? Oh, man. And I, th- I think I've hit all my other miscellaneous notes except for one thing. Okay. Cast oh. your mind back to when she is learning. She's... Are you about to make my head explode? I am not. I am... No. No. Oh, fine. No, no, Good. No, no, I'm no, gonna... No. I'll take the... I'll take the uh, top down then okay. around the room. <laughs> Cast your mind back you to know. when she's learned to walk uh, by watching yes. the frogs. And then... She picks up a frog and hands it to her mom, uh, or tries to, but the frog hops away. And you see, yes. it's very realistically like depicted her face go from smiling to crying. Like she offers mm. mommy the frog and starts crying, and like it kills me because I've seen that face a thousand times. Oh, like it's my so, God. and you want to laugh, but you want to like. But you also, your heart is breaking for the kid at the same time because it's funny, but you know that their sadness is like this real thing. Not just, it's not just like a toy being said. It's like they're really heartbroken. And 
Like, I can't see that scene without making, like, dad noises. Like, both times I've watched it, like, aloud, unbidden, I've just been like, oh, sweetie, come here. You know what I mean? Like, oh, <laughs> we hold your monitor real close. Like, like I wanted to, because, like, again, like, it just, I know what that's like. And and the, the parents also, like, they're just kind of, like, quietly smiling, but they, like, scoop her up and pet, like, it's just um such a sweet depiction of parenthood and what it's like to have a little baby around. It's just so wonderful. I, the first act is so wonderful. <laughs> I love it so much. It's, it is delightful. Like, I haven't elaborated on this much, but I just feel like I need to know there's so much joy in this film, even in its more somber moments. Like, and that is so much a part of like the visuals and like how like even though it's drawn in that kind of like old Japanese art style, the facial expressions are still magnificently well handled. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of little detail that I like where people express their emotions through their facial expressions rather than simply telling us it. Like a, a sideways glance from the mother, for example, mm-hmm. when the father, like you know, he's saying you're going to become a princess, <laughs> whatever. Like showing that she has some conflicts inside of her about doing this in the first place. It is a masterpiece, this film of construction. The long labor was definitely worth it, in my opinion. It it made an incredible an incredible piece of art. And that is what this movie is. It is just a glorious art, so beautiful and meaningful from beginning to end. So much emotion packed into each part of the screen. The expressions, like you said, they're they're just I think from what I read, that's sort of like a hallmark of Takahata and um, Tanabe's collaboration that like his characters are facially and and also like just with their bodies so expressive getting across like all kinds of emotions big and small in these um, really delightful ways and uh, like when she when she's um when Kaguya has uh, wiped all the black stuff off her teeth that huge grin she gives his servant it's amazing amazing Hmm. yeah and like Man, you just, I don't know, I just, the seeing the joy of a child, like, not just a baby, but like a small girl as well, like, I mean, it's so well realized. It's so good. I have to, let me, let me end on this question for you, Doc. After seeing this film, did you like, you know, give your kids a hug or anything like that when you next saw them? Did it, did you do anything like that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I went in, they were already asleep and I like went into the bed and just like, hugged their sleeping selves (laughs) i'll just say this then like i'm not a father myself but i can't think of a more ringing endorsement of a film that is about you know how we raise children how we care for them like and the cautionary you know side of caring and loving for someone for a child uh, you, you know your son your daughter too much like i can't think of a more ringing endorsement for a film about that you know, than one that made a father go home and just, you know, reaffirm his love for his children. What the fuck more? What the fuck more do you want me to say <laughs> about the Taylor Princess Kaguya? I'm mic dropping and I'm out. Probably waking them up in the middle of their their aria. Well, then again, that's because you <laughs> yeah, love them exactly. too much. That's the what? There we go. Mic drop, motherfuckers. Oh. Boom. Well, look. I don't know what else, what I could say to to be summative about how I feel about it. I mean, I think it's it's tremendous. It's one of the most deeply affecting movies and kind of just stories, you know, in the biographical 
part of it, um, the production, like that I have um, encountered uh, in a while. Uh, I don't know how like often I'm going to like revisit this movie because of its, um, I, well, I say that, but then I think like, because Takahata, and he said he wanted this to be a, a film that is indirect uh, in the way that, you know, it communicates its emotional a message. It, he said it won't be a film that communicates its emotion directly. People will be wondering what's going on. There won't be a clear resolution. Um, and b- because of that, it's not like a sort of Grave of the Firefly situation where, like Takahata's other work, right? Where um, you got to take on the subject matter, the heaviness of the themes directly. I think it is possible to watch this movie and like not feel like, oh my God, I've just been run over by a truck. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think it's possible. So I may revisit the movie more than than I think, but just thinking about it so much is, has been a, a heavy um, emotionally. Uh, so I may not like rewatch it as much as like Laputa or Mononoke or Naushka, but like you know, it has made me into like it's made me care about Studio uh, Ghibli in a way that I don't know that I did before. It's made me care about Isao Takahata in an incredible deep way. Like I wanna, I, I want to see the rest of his work. I want to see the rest of Ghibli's work. I want to read and study more about them and that place and what has happened and their history. I feel really invested in that. And on a personal note, like you said, it's made me feel love for my kids. It's made me think about my parenting. It's made me think about um, my own kind of view of life and approach to thinking about it and like finding meaning in it and what that means. Uh, Hmm. Like, if that makes any sense, if that was not just a word salad, it made sense to me when no, I was saying No, 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 that was, that was perfect. All right, let's take it from the bottom for my view on this, to, to round out my feelings on this film. Firstly, purely from the creative side of it, I think it's, I think it's fantastic in pretty much every aspect. Like, the look of it is striking and wondrous, and the white space in particular, like the way that's used in certain scenes to feel oppressive, yeah. like where there's not a lot of detail in service, but also where it just helps give it a more painterly quality. Like you could, I would argue, if you had a high definition copy of this film, take a, any frame of it, any frame of it whatsoever, and you could probably, you know, put in a portrait and hang it in your room. Hell, Make many of them and fill an art gallery with it. Totally. Why the fuck not? Why the didn't fuck you not? feel like? I mean, you you when you're talking about the white space feeling oppressive, <clears throat> those scenes where she was in her little cart, you know, being taken. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a couple of those where, just the way that the shot was framed and composed, like I felt like I was in a cage. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it's true. It's true. And then, as I said before, one of the things I appreciate the most is just the idea that, hey, you know what? This is an old folk tale, and it's very well-respected and well-liked in our culture. But that doesn't mean I can't do more with it and tell something more intimate and personal. Something that's much more touching than the broad stroke that it was previously. So Takahata, just for his feat of adapting this and having the balls to do that, (laughs) earns my respect for that. 
And as I say, like, I see, as a person who isn't a father, like, all the ideas of the president here about, like, how we care for others, like, you know, what's right for us about exercising our own agency, not forcing people into roles or positions they're not suited for, that they don't want to be a part of. But for all that I can analyse the film, for all that I can, like, you know, sit back and talk about that kind of stuff, it just affected me. I nearly did break down at the end of the mm-hmm. film. I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to I'm not afraid to, you know, tell about that, to say that to speak the truth that it really did punch me in the gut. But it left me with that bit of sweet feeling of that the film was saying, Hey, you know what? This terrible thing has happened. Don't get us wrong. But we can learn from it. We can learn, you know, how to best, I suppose, you know, cultivate people like you know help or like you know help people be the thing they were meant to be to begin with rather than shape them into something they weren't just just fantastic and it's also reassuring in a sense as well like i know that takahada had been a long time member of ghibli so technically going from miyazaki to him is not necessarily the transition to the new generation as you might otherwise think it is but nonetheless like that this film was even allowed to happen in after miyazaki went I think to me, you know, just shows that, hey, you know what? Ghibli is more than just one man. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, having now lost Takahata, you know, it still gives me hope that the studio will, as it goes forward, continue to produce great things. And hey, you know, like if, if like, you know, Kaguya in the end, you know, Ghibli does come to an end, you know, an agreed moment when the, the shutters go down and all that, you know, we're not putting cloaks over us to forget about all these things that we've seen. They'll remain with us. And they'll remain for us to watch again and again and treasure for always. Yes. Unless you're watching it on a streaming service, in which case you can go fuck yeah. yourself. because then it's <laughs> Unless you're relying on HBO companies. Max in the future. Get it on Blu-ray! <laughs> Please do. It's totally worth it. It will look amazing uh, on your high-def television. Amazing. Absolutely. <sighs> well, Shadon, I, I think if I add another stroke to the painting that is this podcast it will be one too many so i think this is a, <laughs> as good a place as any to leave the tale of princess kaguya i would agree um so i'll just say this then to all of you listening at home thank you so much for joining us as we've covered princess kaguya uh, i hope we've done it a modicum of justice here and i again if you're you know if you've ignored all my warnings before just just go watch the film yes. honestly Go go watch the if you have a family go watch the film and just give your kids a big hug afterwards. I reckon they would appreciate. And even if you don't, even if you're someone like me who's destined to become an old spinster, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> you know, it's still it's still a wonderful film that affirms something that I think applies to all of us. So you know, help us nurture people to be us tell us to nurture people to be what they were always meant to be, the best of themselves. As they determine, we need to be there to help them with that, not to dictate them, not to force them, not to suggest or control them, just to help them grow. So if you're listening at home uh, when this has gone public and you would like to hear us do more content like this in the future uh, and you want to be up to date with it as it comes out, then why not consider becoming a patron of ours? Uh, we have free tiers, two to $5, $2, $3, 5 and you get yourself a wonderful suite of features with each. You can get yourself Discord access to join us where we shoot the breeze about anime, video games, uh, ongoing shows that we cover. Uh, we do streaming game nights, all sorts of great stuff just simply from that. And if you then subscribe to the higher tiers, you get early access to our numbered episodes. You can even request shows for us to cover if you wish. 
You can participate in patron selections for seasonal anime for a couple week on week. There's a load of great stuff here to check out. So I would very highly recommend you go to patreon.com forward slash show and just give it a look. See if there's something you like. But that being said, you know, if you don't want to, you know, contribute financially to us, if you simply just want to support us in other ways, we're more than happy and grateful for you to do that too. If you found us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, just drop us a like, a comment, a subscribe, all that, you know, medley of stuff, clicking a couple of buttons. I mean, we're all love, we all love pushing buttons, don't we? Push some buttons for us. Tell us what you think. Drop us a like, drop a subscribe. It'll help with our discoverability. And on that note, that brings us to the end of Princess Kaguya, but not the end of our Christmas Ghibli's as it happens. We have a third one to come. And it's funny when I think about it, because the very first one that we have covered, which was Laputa, was, you know, one that... It was at the beginning of Studio Ghibli's journey, uh, arguably, at least as understood in pop culture, like one of the earliest uh, films that they put Mm -hmm. out under that imprint. In fact, the first film, if I'm not mistaken. And Kaguya is one of the most recent films under the imprint. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of doing things in the wrong yeah. order, but we're going to go back to the middle of the road, if you follow my meaning. And we're definitely going to be tackling a film that, well, it is known. It is a known quantity. But you know what? We're going to give it a go anyway. So join us next time for the finale of our look at Christmas Ghibli as we cover Princess Mononoke. And as always, everyone, embrace children always. It's the ends of the universe. Good night. Wow. Good night.